everybody. Welcome back to the Made for TV Mayhem show. We have been gone for a little bit longer than I was planning for various reasons, but we're back. My name is Amanda Reyes. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really happy because we're going, I was going to use the phrase down under with Mark Harmon, but we're kind of going underwater with Mark Harmon and I couldn't figure out how to sex that up. But we're we're basically going to be swimming around with Mark Harmon for a couple hours here, and I'm really excited about it. I've been looking forward to it for a long time. Um, but also, uh, well, I should say what we're talking about. So tonight we're covering our first miniseries, which I'm really excited about. Um, I thought a good way to come back into the new year would be to pick kind of a deep cut movie that I'm not sure a lot of people are familiar with called Goliath Awaits, which is interesting for a number of different reasons. One, because it has this amazing cast that is unlike any cast I've ever seen in a TV movie before. Number two, it's a miniseries. So that's something we haven't done yet. And I know that we should have picked maybe Salem's Lot or something that maybe would resonate more with listeners, but I'm really hoping to turn people onto this movie because it's really good. But the main reason why I picked it, and we're not going to go too deep into it, is that Robert Forrester has a very sizable part in this, um, or as I would say, size, yes. Okay, so we'll introduce our friend here in a minute who's going to laugh at everything I say about member and part. But um, but Robert Forrester, as many of you know, passed away late last year, I think in October. And he's probably, at least in my top five all-time favorite actors, and he was my, my ultimate crush. I have been in love with him for a very long time, and, and I've met him twice. And he was a really sweet man and really beautiful in person and just an immense talent. And when he passed away, I thought I would really like to cover some of his films. And he did do a lot of TV movies. The thing is, is that even though he doesn't star in this per se, although he has a a really big role in it, I think that this was just such a great film for us to talk about and to introduce hopefully to people. Or if people have actually seen it when it originally aired, maybe it'll bring back some good feelings for you. Um, It's a really interesting film with a really interesting history. And so we're going to dive into that. But let me introduce who we have with us tonight. And then let's go ahead and we're going to do a little housekeeping real quick. And then we'll dive right into the movie. So, of course, I'm here with my friend Dan. Hey, Dan, how's it going? Going okay. I'm uh, I'm I'm excited. I, I've been hoping we do a mini series for ages, and now we've finally done one, and I'm very excited. Yeah, this was also a good one because it only ran over two nights. Because like yes. we could do the Winds of War, yeah. but that would be ridiculous. Right? Uh, like- yeah, <laughs> I had su- I'd suggest we do America, which is what 14 hours long. Um, but you you put the kibosh on that. Yeah, you also suggested Fresno, and I'm saying oh, yeah. that out loud here because I want to commit us to that at some point. But I've been saying we're going to do things, and then True. we haven't gotten around to them. But it would be really great if we did Fresno because that's an extraordinary piece yeah. of filmmaking um, that I love. Did you have a good holiday? I did. It was it was very nice. Um, Santa was very good to me. I'll be honest. Uh, when the New Year hit, I kind of fell asleep right after watching New Year's Evil at around sure. 10 p.m., which which happens. And I woke up and it was three in the morning. And I was like, hey, and I went back to sleep. But but apart from that, yeah, it was a very lovely. I, I always enjoy Christmas time and everything. So it's nice to and and we are recording this on the leap year. So oh, yeah. this, is a, this is a very special recording. It is. It's actually a Saturday, which is kind of unique for us. So um, we tried to arrange everybody's schedules because we have a special guest who I'm going to introduce here in a second. But I will say that Nate was with us till the very last minute and then he had to drop out for, you know, because he has a life and things he has to take care of. So that was very sad for us and we hope he comes back soon. But 
Luckily, we had lined up a very special guest, so there's going to be three of us tonight, and I'm so excited about it. We have one of my favorite people on the planet here with us. His name is Gore Blimey. That's his birth name. Yes. I swear to God. And <laughs> Gore Blimey Jones. <laughs> and he's not only a very special person, but he also has an amazing podcast called The Trilogy of Terror Podcast. Yes. The premise of it is that he takes a director and then he covers three films by that director. And he does some really interesting filmmakers, Alberto Bava being one of the first episodes he did, if not the first one, I can't remember. That was really marvelous. And um, But he also does things where he talks a lot about short films. And um, he did something over Christmas that was really interesting where he talked about three Christmas films uh, with his guest. And it was really wonderful. And so anyway, hey, Gorb Limey, how are you? I'm I'm very good, thanks. Especially after that big introduction, I'm feeling I don't know how to get my head out the door after this. But thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so happy to finally get you on the show, and yes. also because we haven't talked since November. I saw you in Birmingham. Yeah. I went to a conference, and Gore Blimey joined me, and we sat around and we looked at all the cute boys and listened to a lot of paper readings, and it was really <laughs> very <laughs> fun order, for us. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, it was a lot of fun, and we hung out. We had really amazing breakfasts at my hotel, mm. and we talked about a lot of things. And the thing about Gore Blimey that's so great is that you are kind of – well, I guess you're just like Dan in a lot of ways in that you are a pretty unsnobby cinephile, um, particularly when it comes to horror and B-movies. Like, you watch a lot of everything. and yeah, um, he does, he does. And we follow you, but it's like you're constantly, like, churning out all of these really great sort of indie um, horror movies, new and old, and, and then you tweet about them while you watch them so people can get a general idea of how you feel about the films and it's a lot of fun to see that and there's also a lot of double entendres which may happen tonight i'm not sure apparently there are i never really know about them i think people tell me afterwards that i said something was really dirty which completely went over my head but um yeah no i mean with movies especially horror movies i think you can appreciate them on different levels so you've got the ones that are really good and really scary or really good stories but then you've also got the ones that that try really hard and, and don't quite make it. And they're a lot of fun as well, I think. I mean, yeah. the, only, the only kind of horror films I don't enjoy are the ones that are just boring, you know. So, I mean, sure. a film doesn't have to be, like, a good film, in inverted commas, um, to be enjoyable, you know. I mean, I've, I've got big, lo- big love, as we know, for Zombie Lake, and it's a terrible film, but oh, it's entertaining, yes. you know. And there's, yeah. and there's so many films like that. So, um, yeah, so I enjoy all kinds of, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit just real quick about, um, so you had a guest, and I can never remember her name. It's Nico. What's her last name? Oh, yes, yes. Nico Vaughn. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I would highly recommend that. Well, there's a couple episodes I recommend, but I would recommend the one with Nico because you guys talk about shark movies, and Mm. she says a lot of really interesting things about, like, Sharknado versus, like, the older shark movies that I found really interesting, and... um, and she's like-minded with you, I think, in the way she approaches these films. And it was a really interesting discussion. And also it was shark movies, which was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> she's, she's written a book um, about uh, that kind of film. I mean, she, she's also um, she set up the Bad Film Club, which is over in the UK, yes. especially around Cardiff area, where her and uh, a friend of hers, they, they, they screen a movie, a bad movie, and do a live commentary through it. And um, she's been doing that for quite a few years now. And I kind of know her through that. 
And so, yeah, she's a lot of fun. She knows a lot about movies, especially the the bad kind, and especially shark movies. That's a particular passion of hers. So, yeah, yeah she's, she, she was a great guest. She's, yeah, really funny. Yeah, but she approaches everything like, is there heart in the film? And if there's yeah. heart in the film, then then you can extend yourself to it. And, and I really liked listening to that, and it kind of warmed me because that's how I also like to watch films. But you also had... Um, probably the best episodes I think you've done thus far were the ones where you had Eric Threefall from the Hysteria Continues come on and you covered Friday the 13th one in, uh, no, sorry, you covered all the Friday the 13th in two parts. And now the first what, four we covered. The first four. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Oops. Oh, that shows you how much I'm paying attention. But yes, and you did it in two parts and it was really, really a great listen and a lot of fun. And that's what you do. You come on and your podcasts are very light, but you also divvy out a lot of information about things. I kind of like to think that maybe we're a sister podcast to you in that way. Uh-huh. And um, and if anybody out there hasn't listened to Trilogy of Terror, I suggest you plug in now and download some episodes and check them out. They're all very good episodes. Um, I'm just oh, throwing out the you. ones that I remember that I, I really, really enjoyed. The Lamberto Bava one was really good too for me because you really kind of re-sparked my love of Lamberto Bava <laughs> with that one. And I've been really obsessed with him ever since I listened to that episode because I watched the movie so I could send you some feedback and um, and I kind of forgot how much I really like him as a filmmaker and so ever since then I've been like trying to figure out how I can write an academic paper on him <laughs> to do at a conference and things yeah. like that so yeah he's he, a fascinating he's, filmmaker he was a, a really easy choice for a first episode for me because Demons is one of my favorite 80s mm-hmm. Italian right. horror films it's just such yeah. a lot of fun I mean not only because it's got some great special effects and it's just a it's got some great scary moments as well in it, but it's also got the kind of the sort of bizarre ridiculousness of things like from nowhere a helicopter drops through the roof and yes. you know, and this kind of strange silliness that's in it as well. But it's it's an amazing, amazing film. So I mean that was a really easy choice to pick as the first one. But it was also interesting for me to get to see some of his other films that I hadn't seen before. You know, so that yeah. was quite. I mean, that's part of the the reason behind picking one director and looking at their work is that it's also an opportunity for me to try and learn a bit about them and about what other things they've done. Yeah, the photos of Goya one is one that I had actually seen before, but I, I rewatched it, and that's a really interesting talk about things happening for no reason, like the fever dream sequences of the murders with the giant eyeball head and everything. Mm. It's really evocative and interesting, and it's a really interesting i think he's an interesting filmmaker so i'll just leave it at that that's for another mm, mm, podcast yeah. i think but um but anyway everybody check out trilogy of terror yes. so i'm so happy that he's here because we are going to talk a little bit about the british airings of goliath the weights um not too much um but i wish i'd written down some more of the numbers because maybe you could help me sort of suss out how you guys do your ratings and maybe i'll talk about that when we get to that point But before we get started, I just want to do a very brief bit of housekeeping here at the beginning while we still have our listeners all here. Um, So we were nominated again for a Rondo Award. We were nominated last year for what's called Best Multimedia Site, which is basically podcasts or websites that have a lot of interactivity, I guess. And um, there's a huge amount of people on the list this year, including The Stereo Continues, which I'm really excited about. Um, They well-deserved. And um, and I was also nominated for Best Commentary for Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, which came out through uh, Warner Archives. Yeah. Yay, thank you. And I'm really excited about that for a couple different reasons. One, because that's a great TV movie, and it was nice to see it get nominated. Yeah. But secondly, it was a solo commentary, and those are still really kind of scary for me, and it was kind of nice to see it get recognized. So 
Um, I'm really excited about that. So I'll just tell you. So we, last year when we got nominated, we were so beside ourselves with excitement that we did a very special episode where we where we each picked an episode that we really liked that we thought would make a good introduction to our show. So if you're just tuning into us for the first time, try to go back through our archives and find that episode. I guess it came out approximately a year ago, and um, it's not very long. And we we all just sort of guide you to episodes we think are of note um, from the. I guess we've done about 50 episodes now. So. So um, check that out. I will tell you, voting ends on March 29th. So just Google Rondo Awards. I think it might be rondoaward.com is the URL. And you can email um, your uh, picks to terraco at aol.com. So that's T-A-R-A-C-O at aol.com. And just do it by March 29th. And just vote with your heart. Obviously, you don't have to vote for us. But it's great if you do send in some ballot about something. It's really neat uh, to be recognized for things. And it's a pretty prestigious award in the horror community. So we don't take it lightly. Um, and we're very excited. And that's all I'm going to say about it. I'm not going to show oh, it down anybody's throats. Oh, go may, ahead, Dan. May I, may I, well, I, I did notice that on the um, uh, on the uh, award sort of ballot thing, they say, like like with your uh, commentary, they say it's not specific. It's, it's that commentary is what you were specific specifically voted on there for, but it, you, you can also treat it as like looking at the person's work over the year kind of thing. So not just including that, you can say like, we are giving Amanda Reyes this exciting award kind of thing, not just specifically for the one commentary. It says yeah. that somewhere on the ballot. So because there are so many on there and there's so many folks like yourself who, who do who do a lot of these and it's sort of this... Is that a word? You know, it's sort of yeah. this big um, thing, you, you know, and, and, and you sort of, it's, 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 yeah, it covers everything as far as I know, not just that, but, but if you love that one, and I think it's one of your best commentaries, oh, um, I, I think, um, I think, yeah, vote for Amanda. It's a vote for the <laughs> world. Uh, it's a vote for well, freedom. Yeah. So yeah, in the election year, this is very important, yes. guys. Make sure you yeah. make your right choices. But um so anyway, thank you very much. But let's dive into Goliath's Awake. Forty years ago, a Nazi sub sank the world's largest ocean liner. Now, in nineteen eighty one, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, a thousand feet down, a diver makes a chilling discovery. There's somebody looking out at me. It's a girl. Oh my god. She's alive. The Goliath. After 40 years on the ocean floor, why are they still alive? Watch Goliath Awaits. Wednesday night at 8, only on Channel 11. So I will say I'm going to try to keep this as simple as possible. This was a this was two two-hour uh, parts, a total of like three hours and 12 minutes long. Now, I know what you're saying. Guys, you do two movies generally that are about that long. But they're separate movies, and it's it's easier to, to cover right. and such. And this has like a cast of thousands. Well cast of many dozens so let me uh, i'm gonna get i'm gonna try to keep on top of the names as best i can but so we start it's during uh world war ii there is a uh british uh vessel ship called the goliath which has three thousand passengers on it's huge ship going I, th I believe across the atlantic uh well where else would it be going i guess if it's going for britain um so it's going across the atlantic and uh on board you see all it's very titanic esque which i maybe i may have given something away there um and you see all these uh uh people on board and you meet the young engineer john mckenzie played by 60 year old christopher lee which is fun <laughs> um uh but you meet mckenzie who is very sort of a well respected engineer on the ship and then you meet a man named dan wesker played by frank gorshin doing an accent that I ain't going to wander near, but I think it's meant to be Irish. Um, 
I mean, I could say Faith and Begora like really loud or something like that, but I ain't going to. Maybe later. Maybe later we will. And uh, Mackenzie has a brief chat with Wesker, and you learn sort of that Wesker was some kind of criminal that, that Mackenzie has given a break to and allowed him to work on the ship. And then almost immediately, Nazis torpedo the ship and it sinks, and we cut from 1940-ish to uh, 1981. And uh, the SS Mark Harmon, I forget what the name of the ship is that they're traveling on, <laughs> but Mark, Mark Harmon is on there, and he has a great mustache, and his sort of second, he's on a salvage ship. They are looking for like, I, I, they said like mag, mag, magnesium or manganese, or they're looking for something or other. Um, molybdenum, I don't know, some sort of metal or, or oh. element out in the middle. Oh, yes? Real quick, just because now that you've said that, it just I didn't make a note of it, but we should mention that on this ship is Kip Niven, the star of New Year's Eve, right? <laughs> I, I was just about to say, his oh, second in command. Oh, no, that's okay. I was going to say, his second in command is the killer from New Year's Evil. And <laughs> his engineer is Roz Kelly. I'm kidding. But but uh, uh, the guy from New Year's Evil is on there. And they, they find the Goliath. And so they, they decide to, although it's not on their sort of purview, as it were, they, they go down and they check it out. It's the Goliath. It's, it's bound to have stuff on it. And what ends up happening is Mark Harmon's character, who's Peter Cabot, um, and I'm going to alternate between calling him Mark Harmon and, and Cabot throughout this. Um, but uh, Mark Harmon hears a tapping. And as he approaches the, uh, the, the Goliath, the sunken Goliath, which is 1,000 feet down, he hears that someone is tapping SOS, and it seems to be coming from within the ship. And he looks through a porthole, sees what looks to be a light emanating from inside, and then he sees a lovely young lady slowly approach the porthole from within the sunken ship. And then he has kind of like a spazzy moment, and he winds mm -hmm. up sort of uh, by a pool, um, kind of convalescing a little bit later. And he sticks by what he's, he heard the SOS, he saw a light, and he saw a young woman inside the ship. And he's talking to Admiral Sloan, played by the great Eddie Albert. Hooray! And, and all, uh, talking to Commander Jeff Selkirk, played by Robert Forster. Hooray! So it's this fun scene where it's Eddie Albert talking to Robert Forster, talking to Mark Harmon. I am certain that I was quite lucid when I saw what I saw and I heard what I heard. Listen, all I'm asking is that someone with the proper capabilities and, and hardware go out there and investigate. Look, if I'm wrong, you can Please. lock me up and throw away the key. And if I were to give you the okay and you were wrong, they'd lock me up too. Only my cell would be padded. Commander, your salvage officer, what'll it take to do this job? Well, for openers, sir, we might toss Mr. Cabot here in a straitjacket. I mean in the way of equipment. Yes, sir. Our most sophisticated vessel is the Point Loma, sir, but she's in dry dock and couldn't be made available for at least a month, sir. Any other solution? Well, if the Admiral's really serious about pursuing this charade... I am serious, mister. And I expect a direct answer to my question, not a personal observation. Yes, sir. And they're basically uh, discussing what he saw, and um, as Selkirk and Cabot have a have a, um, a history together involving, uh, like, um, I won't go too into it, but like Cabot, I guess, kind of um, uh, ignored some orders in order to help Selkirk get out of something, and Selkirk kind of turned him in, even though um, Cabot saved his life, and et cetera, et cetera. This will come back later on, much 
later on. But uh, and, and so Selkirk is very no-nonsense, as you would expect from Robert Forster. He's very no-nonsense, whereas Mark Harmon's character is very much like, come on, I want to go. I saw a lady. She was cute. I got this mustache. Let's do it. Let's check it out. Come on. Be awesome. And, and Admiral Sloan says, okay, I want you to take a ship. They got a British ship. Uh, they can take oh, out there. And then we learn Admiral Sloan takes um, Robert Forster aside and says, I loved you an alligator. Can I have your autograph? He doesn't say that. But <laughs> what he says is you need to go down there because there was a Senator Bartholomew on board. And Senator Bartholomew had, a, had a, like a diplomatic pouch from the British to FDR directly. And we've learned that the, what, the information is pretty volatile. In, in, in the pouch, and it was actually written by two Nazi spies. So it's it's false, but he says something something which I, I didn't I didn't I didn't fully uh, get. But I, I understand what they were going. Where he said, and so if someone were to get a hold of that and leak that yeah. to the world, it would be problematic, and we wouldn't be able to prove that it was falsified anymore. Right. I, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure how that works, but uh, so so it's basically. Uh, Sloan has kind of his own thing like, okay, you know, Mark Harmon might, might be a bit doolally, but we are going to send you down there to uh, check it out and find that pouch and destroy it. So they send a bunch of people down there and they've got um, a crew. Uh, they've got a doctor there. They've got um, Cliff from Cheers is there, which is awesome. Yes. Uh, he, right. was, he was just in the director's, uh, Kevin Connors' Motel Hell. That's the right. So, yes. so I guess that's one of his favorites is Mr. Ratzenberger. Um, and they uh, go down there and they, they approach the Goliath. And the whole time, um, Robert Forster's character is very much like, this is a waste of time. Well, he knows he has to go in for the pouch, but he's like, this is a waste of time. There's no one down there, et cetera. And, and Mark Harmon is like, trust, trust me. I'm Mark Harmon, and they get right <laughs> down by the boat, and and um, there, there's a great moment. There's a the um, the guy, the pilot of like the little ship thing that they they land is named Dave, and so they they get up close and they hear the SOS. They actually they actually hear it, and um, Mark Harmon's character taps back, and they get a message back from the inside of the Goliath. That's something along the lines of um, Goliath awaits three hundred, you know, implying that there are three hundred survivors, uh, and then it's something like. Air toxic, beware, and then it taps out the name Mackenzie. They must have heard us. Why else would they stop the SOS? This uh, is PC 18. Respond. They got a knack for rhythm, Peter. See if they answer the bongo serenade. Damn, answering. Answering. Here. Uh, uh, Goliath. On. Board three three seven seven danger air toxic.
And it's like, oh, Christopher Lee is still alive. The young Mackenzie is alive, <laughs> so he's 102. Um, and and then they, they sort of, they begin to, they send two divers in um, to uh, investigate. The divers make it into a space where there is an air bubble inside the ship. Uh, and uh, I, I, I'm trying to figure out where to wrap this up um, because you see the two divers kind of rise up out of the water. And I, I forget, they're in some sort of room that might be like a pool or something. I forget what it is. And they look um, around the room and standing on like a ledge sort of on the floor out of the water are a bunch of guys. And they immediately shoot the divers. We cut to a little bit later and Admiral Sloan is giving a press conference. And it's a great press conference because he sort of does that thing where it's like, yes, you. Uh, okay, and you. Yes. And you, oh, Gene, how are you? And that, yes, you. Mm, yes. And it's it's a fun conference. And you learn that they are going to send um, a diving. T- There's a lot of scientific stuff, which may or may not be real science about how they have to depressurize and pressurize and they have to adapt a crew to the air that's in the, the, the ship because they've been recycling air for 40 years. And they basically send down our main guys. They send down Mark Harmon and Robert Forrester and John Ratzenberger and uh, that doctor guy. And they're all sent down into the uh, ship. They have all sorts of like depressurizing cabins and things all over the place because they're going to bring the 300 people up and they have to obviously from 1,000 feet – uh, um, underwater, they have to be adjusted so they don't get the bends and their bodies don't, I guess, explode or, or something. And uh, so they 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 basically head into the ship, uh, arrive at the exact same spot where the previous divers arrived, and they meet everybody. And there's a crew there led by Mr. McKenzie. Uh, Frank Gorshin is there, continuing to do that accent, whatever it is. Um, we meet um, uh, Christopher Lee's, uh, well, John McKenzie's daughter, Lee, Lee Leah, Lee, yeah. I, 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 yeah. 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 Um, who's Emma, Emma Sams. And, um, and we sort of realize that there is, they've, there are 300 people living there. They've been there for 40 years and they, they're surviving. And there, there's lots of explanation of how they survive and things like that. And um, people seem to be happy. And McKenzie is almost, almost like, um, He's almost like a, a living god, sort of. Everyone's yeah. like, oh, Mr. McKenzie's done this. Mr. McKenzie's done that. And Dan Wesker's character is kind of – no one really seems to like him. But McKenzie kind of keeps him on as – well, we'll talk about his character. But I'm, I'm going to wrap this up here. But basically the the, the gang, uh, Selkirk and Cabot and, 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 and Cliff show up and they say, uh, hey, we, we want to save your people. We want to rescue your people. Bring them up to the surface. And um, – some people are excited. Some people are a little uh, iffy on that. And because they sort of, it looks like a utopia, although we learned very quickly that there are sort of pirate-esque people who live mm. in the, um, who live sort of in the bowels of the ship and kind of break in and try. They're sort of pe- described as people who uh, have tried to break out of the ship and have been affected by the bends. So they're sort of broken and deformed apart from the main guy who's a super hunk. And, That's right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Duncan Rieger. Um, Yes, and um, and so I'll kind of leave it there because um, uh, Selkirk is very no nonsense and says we we've got it set up. We want to get your people out of here. And Mackenzie is kind of we'll, we'll we'll discuss how it is. I'll just say that everything isn't quite uh, as great as Mackenzie's utopia would lead you to believe. And 
a lot of things happen. At this point, we're about an hour into the three-hour and 12-minute long thing. So I'm going to stop there because I could go on for another 20 minutes. But that's the basics of Goliath. It starts off like a disaster film, and then it becomes very much like one of Kevin Connors' um, films with Doug McClure from the 70s, where they find a Jules Verne-esque civilization, and then it shifts and moves about. But I will stop there. Um, That's a pretty good breakdown, and it's amazing how long it takes to kind of unfold that but it happens in a way it happens very quickly and in a way they really take their time with showing how they get um underwater and into the boat so i want to get your opinions of the film first before we dive into the story so i've seen goliath awaits three times this is my third time watching it i love it every time i watch it i always think okay i'll watch this in two parts but then I always end up sitting there for three hours and 15 minutes and just glued to the TV because I'm really um, just fascinated by this little world that was created by the filmmakers. And um, But since I've seen it three times, and um, I'm not that interesting to talk to. So let's look at the opinions of the other two people who've seen I think this. I think this is a first-time viewing for both of you. Um, yes, yes. Yeah, so I'm really excited to hear your thoughts. So let's go ahead and start with Dan. Dan, what did you think of Goliath the Waves? I quite liked it. Um, and I, I was actually going to say what you just said, which is I, I, when I when I watched it, I tried to watch it the way it originally aired. So I when I sat down to watch it, I watched it in a version that was all strung together. So there were no opening, closing right. credits in between one and two. You can tell the moment when one ends. It's very obvious um, and very sad, too. But I, I end, what ended up happening was about a week ago, I sat down and was like, OK, I'm going to watch the first half. Then tomorrow I'm going to watch the second half. But I actually think this is one that works better if you just treat it as a movie that is the length of like Titanic or Shortcuts, you know, if you or Avengers Endgame or something, you know, if you just treat it as a very long movie, it actually works better. Because I think if I had taken a day off in between part one and part two, I don't think it would have had the same um, gravitas. No, that's not yeah. quite right. Well, maybe that's right with Mark Harmon and his mustache and getting more histrionic as he goes. Um, <laughs> Uh, but um, I, I, th- I think it works better if you watch it all at once, set aside the time and do that. Because I watched it twice for this. I was able to sneak in a second viewing. And I just, I just think it, it looks like it's structured to be watched all at once. It doesn't feel like the, 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 break, the, the break at the end of part one um, is it, it, fine. But watch it all at once. Having said that, I really enjoyed it. I love the way that it begins very much in a vein of like um, Race the Titanic or Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, where it's sort of, I don't know if you call those post-disaster disaster films, where there's been a disaster, and now we're going to go and check it out. And like in Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, you know, Michael Caine and Sally Field and Telly Savalas end up getting involved in that disaster. The first 40, 45 minutes of this are sort of... Uh, uh, excavating the um, sunken ship, as it were. But then about an hour in, when they discover the society, for about mm, an hour and a half... I'm so sorry, everyone, I've got my throat. Um, for about an hour and a half, it becomes, like I said, sort of very much like almost a Jules Verne-esque. Um, I was surprised Doug McClure wasn't in it. Uh, yeah. Mm, Kevin yeah. Connor film, that, that confused me, because I always love some Doug McClure. Um, yes. But, well, he was making humanoids from the deep, maybe around this time or something. Yeah. So Emma he could. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> that's right. Um, but uh, and and so for about an hour and a half, it becomes it it becomes 
you you see this world and it's very much one of those like we've discovered this lost world and you learn how it works and you learn what happens and you learn that maybe it's not as um beatific utop utopic utopia-ish utopia-ish <laughs> as 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 you think it is and then it's great because as you sort of see this world kind of beginning to fall apart it becomes a like airport 77 style disaster film again where everything's falling apart now we have to get as many people out as we can before it all you know it goes to pieces and um and there's so much going on and like just to the point where you're like how can something else how, how can uh, what else could happen john carradine shows up and you're like what i forgot he was in the credit you know it's just <laughs> yeah. it's 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 a lot of fun and i th i think it's it's got a really nice flow to it and i mean there are there are bits here and there like some of the stuff between robert forster and mark Harmon. um i don't i don't want to say it felt forced but it was like okay we get it they have to have this sort of bit of antagonistic kind of thing but i could have done without that uh but but most of it and i could have to be honest frank gorshin really took me out of the movie at times uh -huh. he's i mean i don't yes, know oh, I, yes. I mean i i mean the thing is i love the riddler he's he's a fantastic riddler oh my gosh he's so good but it's just that he, he alternates between being like very sinister he's very sinister when the camera is just looking at him and you see his face the moment he starts talking he, <laughs> uh, he he kind of would take yeah. me out of the film, unfortunately. Now, not that it's bad. He's not there all the time. He's just kind of um, sort of on 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 the edges of the movie a lot of the times. But um, the accent reminds me a lot of um, the Leprechaun. Um, oh. It reminds me of that, but not as good as Leprechaun. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh my god! Am I going to have to defend Frank Gorshin? No, I, I I I I like the concept of the character. Although there was there was one thing I I. I I'll, I'll say this now in case I forget it, um, because one of the things with the characters that Mackenzie kind of uses him as his kind of tough guy, strong arm guy, kind of, but sort of casually. And sometimes he doesn't even realize that Frank Gorshin's character is doing some of the things he's yes. doing. Um, mm. But but the, the weird thing is it's kind of mentioned, you know, like, well, he was this criminal and he was wanted for something and Mackenzie brought him on board the ship and and uh, gave him a chance and now he's his right hand man. But it almost implies that Mackenzie brought him on board the ship back in the 40s because he knew they were going to sink and they were going to wind up on the ship for 40 years. So he'd need this guy by his side. That, that's almost that smart. Yes, yeah, that's mm. almost the way I thought about it. It's like that's really planning ahead. You know, we might get sunk, and there might be an air bubble. I'm going to bring this this guy on who will do anything for me because I gave him a, a chance. Apart from um, a good Irish the, accent, yeah. yeah. Apart from gosh, maybe he's not Irish. He's a he's a fugitive on the run. You know, <laughs> that's he, right. So, but yeah, I, th I think the the movie it, it you know it has its faults here and there, but generally it 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 moves really nicely and it it's got so many characters and it's got so much going on that most of the things I saw that I was like I was I'm iffy on came in the second viewing and i don't think most people will watch it more than once so I, I i recommend it quite a bit i i thought it was a joy well what did you think of alex cord's accent as dr sam marlowe because he was like straight up plantation owning yes. like my darling surely you don't think we'd do anything without his permission like <laughs> i can't even do it like it's just his accent and i love alex cord but like sure. that is the accent where i'm like and speaking of accents um it's interesting because so a lot of the survivors of the Goliath, well, they're not really survivors of the Goliath. They came after they were born, right? Yeah. And on the ship, and then they grew up on the Goliath. So we have two characters. We have Maria, and we have Emma Sam's character, who I think you said was Leah. I'm totally forgetting her name now. And it's interesting. So Christopher Lee's 
British, right? And his daughter has a British accent. Yeah. But Lori Lathine's character, Maria, came from right. Americans, and she has an American accent. And I don't understand how yeah. they have accents as at all. Yeah, you know, it's like not a or what that, thing. <laughs> Yeah, it's really funny how that happened. There was no consistency in like the accents at all, and with the exception of Robert Forrester, who's from Chicago or something, and sounds yeah. like it. But yeah, but that's really about there, it. And I I did notice too that um that uh, the the um. There's a high proportion of final girls who apparently were um, ancestors of the originals because uh, folks on there – because you get Laura Lathine and then you get the final girl from um, Don't Open Till Christmas. I guess she's kind of the final – she's not quite the final girl. She's the lead gal who's uh, – I forget the actress's name, but you know her. You know what I'm talking about. Wait, the girl from Don't Open Till Christmas is in this movie? The 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 um not the one who the killer kidnaps the one who's in Slaughter High not that one oh. the other one whose dad gets killed at the beginning oh my god she, she, I didn't her, realize yeah he, they have the daughter like the six year old daughter yes yes yes, yes. and yeah and the uh, oh my god yes I totally I totally see her now in my head and I recognize I didn't realize that she had actually was an actress of any kind of note because being in Don't Open Till Christmas is of note as far as I'm concerned yeah. but um. Because that's really amazing. I didn't know that. Um, so, okay, Gorblimey, why don't you tell us what you thought of Goliath Awaits? Shall I start with my favorite bit of all? Yes. Um, my favorite bit, I mean, this is above Mark Harmon, of course, um, <gasps> is Mark Harmon's trousers. I mean, those those were so tight. <laughs> I mean, you could, see, you could see all his lunchbox. And uh, believe you me, there were quite a few <laughs> meat products in there. Um, yes, it was... Uh, it was oh about almost as distracting as the Irish accent. Um, but now he's because, um, yeah, because there's a scene at the beginning, which Dan mentioned when he's by this pool and this I think it's a naval hospital. So presumably he's getting something done to his belly button or something. But he um, the admiral guy comes over and at one point he <laughs> says to him, I can see a candle. And I thought, well, so could all of us. Well, those trousers on. But um <laughs> yeah, it's oh no, he's great in there. I mean, he is he is he steals the show for me. And uh, there was there's a scene where we hear him. Uh, somebody mentions he, that Mark Harmon is going to be penetrating the torpedo hole. And uh, to be honest, I had to go and lie down for a bit when I heard that. Um, <laughs> but um, it, it's it's a really fun movie. I I enjoyed it. It's something you need to suspend quite a lot of disbelief for. Yes, for sure. I mean, you know, it starts off with things like, for example, you've got Christopher Lee um, wearing the exact same uniform he was wearing 40 years ago in pristine condition, still fits and everything. So a little bit zombie lake there. And you've got Emma Sams in full makeup and, and all the rest of it. It was kind sure. of a little bit, you know. But then, you know, I watch a lot of horror movies. So I'm not really someone in a position to criticise how real a film is. Um, I mean, in terms of the actors, I think, for me, Jean Marsh is the, the one, the, the best oh, performance for me. Yeah. I thought she was amazing. Oh, I loved, yeah, I loved Jean yes. I mean, she, she, she had a, a role which could have been a very bland, forgettable character and a very unlikable character, but she actually brings life to it. And she makes, she makes her sympathetic, you know, yes. despite everything. And I think that was, that was great. And I don't know how well known she's over with you. She, she was over here. She's more famous for um, a series we had called Upstairs, Downstairs. Yes. That's right. Well, she uh, co-created, which, that's right. which yeah, I didn't she, know. She did, also yes. did The House of Elliot, which was another costume mm. drama that was really big over here, which she, she co-created as well. She's, no, she's absolutely great. And, I mean, of course, Christopher Lee 
was great, but then I wouldn't have expected anything less from him. I yes. thought he was great. He's 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 got such a presence, you know. I mean, his voice, the way he looks. I mean, you know, you said he was sixty or something. He looks very good for his yes. for his age, yeah. and he has this this stature. He, I mean, I think he he's about six foot five or something, you know. So he towers above even the six foot actors in this. You know, he's got a really big presence. We've also got, as far as actors go, there's Mark Harmon, of course, and um, he has a whole sequence in the film, in the sub, where he's completely shirtless and very sweaty. So, I mean, and his acting, I mean, who cares? <laughs> but, <laughs> it's all right, I suppose. It's good, I think. I don't know. But uh, the moustache is a bit off-putting. I mean, it sort of looks a bit yeah. like someone, someone sort of asked him to, to smell this hamster and then he kind of forgot to exhale afterwards <laughs> or something. It's a bit, it's a bit like weird. It. But I had, I had glue under my nose. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> the um i mean his character is also um he's supposedly quite likable and heroic but he's i found him a bit creepy in a couple of places um because yeah. there's one scene where he he barely met emma sam's character and he's kind of launching his face onto hers and snogging her and stuff and then in a in a later scene he's talking they call him romeo and he's talking about you know getting married and all and the poor girl's sitting there and it's like does she get a say in this or anything and it, was, <laughs> it was a little bit creepy she's supposed to be 17 or something um, well it was off-putting because he the scene where he kisses her is right after maria dies mm. and she's mourning the loss of her friend and he comes to comfort her and then he starts making out with her and i'm like i don't know if this is the right yeah, time this is yeah this is a bit yeah a little bit yeah but anyway i mean the weakest link for me with all this is as you've said is the the wesker the irish guy um oh. that because he he says at one point he says when i was in dublin and i thought you've never been to dublin in your life <laughs> i don't think you know where to point to it on a map but um, <laughs> that was really like like um dan was saying i found that very distracting um every time he spoke it really took me out of it because i was just thinking oh that's awful that accent <laughs> so i mean that i mean and talking of other accents that that find it a little bit grating and this is nobody's fault this is when they were playing their music it's just a pet hate of mine they they had all these old records with songs sung in that 1940s clipped british accent that you Happy days are here again, and and do the <laughs> Lambeth walk, oi! And it's just it really grates with me. It's very brief oi. encounter, yeah, oi! <laughs> it's very brief encounter. That's just a pet hate of mine. Um, so I mean, it, I agree with Dan as well. I got in my notes I'd made that it reminded me of those Doug McClure movies from the seventies, mm-hmm. those sort of warlords of Atlantis and at the Earth's core, at the Earth's core, and, yeah, um, yeah, and also the the sixties version of the Time Machine. It reminded me of those sort of, oh sure, yeah, not not because it has the monsters or the same story, but it's just that whole adventure feeling, and um, right. it also reminded me I saw very recently um, a recent film called Snowpiercer from 2013 oh, yes. um, yeah. with Chris Evans who sadly isn't sweaty and shirtless through most of it um, <laughs> but it, it's got a very similar setup it's got an isolated society um, in this case it's they're not under the sea there it's post-apocalyptic so they're the only survivors and they're in a confined area but it's in a train instead of a ship and there's a like a man in charge who's a bit godlike sort of he thinks he's a bit godlike and it has no qualms of killing people and stuff and you've got the people at the back of the train which are like the, the bow people in this the sort of underclass that don't kind of fit in yes. um, so there's a lot of similarities that was quite interesting to compare the two with you know the same setup um but uh, it, it's quite long with the three hours but actually um 
it goes along at a really good pace, and I thought that was quite good. Um, and if it does start to get a bit slow, they just chuck in another shirtless man. There's quite a few of them thrown in there. There's, there's no there's no female nude shirt, but there's a lot of shirtless men in there. Um, so, I mean, you know, there's that. Um, Emma Sams, the only thing with Emma Sams is the there's a climactic scene where she's being rescued and she kind of turns into a bit of a sack of potatoes and is a bit of a liability and keeps fainting and passing out and having to stop and catch her breath or get carried and then she takes forever and ever trying to put the protective gear on and stuff and I've got to be honest at those points I was yelling at the at the screen for him to just <laughs> leave her behind <laughs> is, that bit, is that a bit mean <laughs> It's. I, I think. I think at, at that point in the movie, it is. It, it has become a, like a disaster film again, mm. and, and so you have to have a character who does that. But her character, and it seems, doesn't seem quite right. So it's sort of like, mm. uh, come on, come on, just get get a moving, get a moving. Um, the 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 thing. I mean, I I overall. I mean, it sounds like I picked out a lot of things that were kind of fun um, and and laughing at it, which I I did admit there were a bit bits that you know amused me in it. But overall, I found it was like a really fun sort of an action movie, like an adventure movie. Um, I mean, the only thing that was slightly uncomfortable to watch for me is it's the whole thing just seemed to turn into a a metaphor. You know, you've got this society in a bubble Mm. that are playing out their 40-year-old music and fashions, don't want to be part of the wider society because of fear of fear and lack of knowledge, who follow every word their delusional leader with a God complex says, and they're fed lies Mm. and misinformation, fear of outsiders, blissfully unaware that their people, you know, being killed off and um, yeah. and ignoring the advice of all the experts and scientists and at the same time it's their leader that's that's doing all the things that's killing them off and so and that was kind of a bit that that seems a bit um watching it in 2020 was quite yeah. uncomfortable yeah. <laughs> um whichever side of the continent you're on it seems you know of the world you're on it seems a bit uncomfortable but uh, but no overall i really enjoyed it i i thought it was um loads of loads of fun went by really quickly and although it was over three hours long it didn't didn't feel like that at all no i thought it was it was yeah loads of fun it was a good pick so thank you Oh, good. Good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I guess what I want, I'll start here is that Gorblam, you brought up a couple of interesting things um, and I didn't write them down. So I'm trying to do these off memory. But the thing that you mentioned that I wanted to point out was Jean Marsh and Christopher Lee, I think are both interesting characters in that even though I think Christopher Lee has a very dark side to his character, I found them both to be sort of tragic mm-hmm. and Jean Marsh mm-hmm. in particular. And, and she won my heart because so like so like the, the people who have come from the top of the earth into the water and down into the Goliath, they come and they're being kind of toured around and they're being treated fairly well and they're being shown. They're, there's this really great sequence where they get kind of like a tour and you see everything sort of in the screen glow and that's because everything's sort of phosphorus from the seaweed and everything and the way um, the, the engineer turned God, right? Christopher Lee's character, Mackenzie, yeah. has turned all of the stuff from the ocean to sustainable um, things so that they could live off them and it's kind of to see it all set up but anyway um, Christopher Lee uh, goes ahead and he splits off the doctor Dr. Sam Marlowe is Alex Cord's character and he hooks him up with Jean Marsh who's Dr. Goldman. Goldman is the important word here because she's Jewish and she um, was born I think during the war she was a little girl because I wish she I think oh. she was on the ship when it sank and it's important because they kind of bring it up later because uh, she looks the other way when terrible things are happening, but she was a Jewish person 
who was mm. the victim of so much stuff happening on the top side, right? And so it's kind of interesting. So her character is very conflicted and complicated. But she's also really, really tragic. So one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when she's showing Alex Cord's character around. She's never been in a relationship with a person. She decided that being a doctor, her so her father was a doctor and he trained her and she becomes the doctor of the ship after the ship sinks. And she's never her whole life has been her career and never to like think about getting involved or having children or anything like that but you could tell it's something that's been inside of her that's missing and so it casually while getting to know her um marlo asks have you ever been married and or do you have any children right is that what he says and she says no and she asks him and he says yes i have three children and i'm married and you could see this look on her face she marsh's character that she's so crestfallen that he's yes. married because they have they have this chemistry. Seems that Goliath has more than its share of brilliant men. You are thinking about Mr. McKenzie, from whom all blessings flow. <laughs> you know, I have a great curiosity about your world. I can't imagine what it's like at all, in spite of everything we've been taught about it. Well, it might disappoint you, but I hope not. Do you have much illness there? Yes. There are many enemies we haven't conquered yet. There's cancer, the common cold. Oh, we don't have anything like that here. No illness at all? Oh, minor complaints, of course. But our isolation has protected us. In the beginning, many died. But now we have a strong population with natural resistance. <laughs> Which reminds me the reason I'm here, aside from your charming company, of course. Mm -hmm. We brought along some serum to inoculate the people against any viruses that we might introduce ourselves. Uh, does Mr. Mackenzie know about this? Surely you don't think we'd do anything without his permission? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> Are you married, Dr. Goldman? No. No, I'm, I'm dedicated to my work. And Mr. Mackenzie thought I would be more valuable doing this. Are you? Yes. <laughs> oh. Children? Three. Oh. You don't, you don't quite expect that response. You kind of expect him to say no or, you know, uh, my wife has passed or something like that. But when he says it, yeah, you could see it in her face. She's so good, yeah. She's so amazing in this, and, and it rips your heart out because you see that she's had to give up so much um, to live this life, and she's done it in a way where she's sort of, like I said, looking the other way while these horrible things are happening because there's this disease, it's called Palmer's disease, right? Yes. That's yes. going around the ship, which is, I say Palmer's disease in quotes because what it actually is, is when somebody becomes feeble and they can't become a worker on the ship or they get too old or something happens, like they hurt themselves, like with Maria, and we can talk about that here in a second, um, they get quote-unquote Palmer's disease and they somehow end up dead. And the body is instantly cremated, so she never does any autopsies on them. And so while it's so ironic that it just so happens that everybody who becomes less than useful on the ship dies of quote-unquote Palmer's disease, she never investigates it any further than that. And at the same time, she comes from a place where they were doing medical experiments, right, on Jews Yeah. Um, during the era that she mm. would have been on the Goliath. So it's a really interesting – her character is full of so many layers, and, and so I'm so glad you mentioned it. And also the tragedy of, of 
we can talk about the end of the film because she also has kind of a tragic end as well. And I think Christopher Lee is tragic as too, because I'm under the impression that he doesn't fully understand what Wesker is doing behind his back. If anything mm. at all, like I don't really think he thinks that he's killing all these people. I think he's looking the other way a lot like Goldman is, but I do think in a way he's, is fairly benevolent and I do think he has a God complex, but I, I feel like there's a part of him that is really good. And, um, and it gets just torn apart, especially because for so long he had sustained the Goliath. But as we find out as the film progresses, he created this sort of energy source from this um, volcano that they were sort of shifted on. And um, Mark Harmon's character had informed him that, oh, we already did that like years ago. We tried to use that for an energy source and it doesn't work. And we had to scrap that. And so this thing that you've created was created 30 years ago and it's going to basically kill everybody on your ship. And so he's come to the end of his sort of creative, um, benevolent, godlike sort of world because now he, he can't go any farther than that and his people are in true jeopardy. But he is so kind of used to being the guy that solves all the problems that he can't actually face the devastation that lays ahead of him. So he puts up – it's all about putting up blinders, isn't it, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so like – and it makes, him, it makes him very tragic to me because, because he was the third engineer. He wasn't – that high up but he survived and he able he was able to sustain this life for four decades for his people and then he couldn't do it anymore and so my heart kind of felt for him even though i think at the same time he was also not the greatest guy in the world and and i'm going to defend wesker here um because i think frank gorshin is absolutely terrifying in this film and some of the stuff he does so maybe his accent is not perfect but some of the stuff that I think Wesker does that's really amazing is you notice he doesn't give a lot of eye contact. He's always talking to Christopher Lee and looking ahead. There's something wrong with him and it's clear. And there's something really menacing about him. But it's also like he can't be a part of the society. So he lives on the outside of it. But he thinks he's doing these great things for his leader because he owes him because he gave him a second chance. And so there's something about the performance that I find really intriguing. And, mm -hmm. and he does freak me out in certain parts because he's very cold hearted. And he liked, so when the first two guys come up to check out the Goliath and they get shot, there's this really great camera shot where you see it through their scuba mask, right? He comes up yeah. and it's the point of view yes. of what the guy's yeah. seeing through the scuba mask. And he can't really see what's happening because there's still water over the mask. And mm. so he just sees this group of people and then there's a gunshot and then the mask shatters and then blood splatters onto it, you know? And it's just scary. And you can kind of tell it's Wesker, right? But like the, he has no idea what's happened to him. And both those guys die. And the, everybody just assumes that they couldn't make it to the ship and something happened and, and they died en route and not actually on the ship. And, um, and it's really dark, right? What happened to them? Mm. And so, so the Goliath um, awaits what it does so beautifully, I think, um, is that it does create this really amazing universe that has a lot of beauty in it and a lot of darkness. And so, like, it has, to, so John Carradine is this actor who everybody, of course, thought had gone down with the ship. And Mark Harmon's like, oh, I used to watch you on the late movie all the time. And John Carradine loves this sort of virile actor that everybody, thought he was and then he in reality he's become this old man this really sweet old man but like he talks about it at the end that he wants people to remember him as he was in the films right and so so there's this but he's also he he does these sword fights with the kids and they show his old films they have the reels of them there and it's just really sweet stuff that happens 
And they have like really funny moments. Like there's this ongoing joke with John Ratzenberger really enjoying the food that they're eating in the Goliath, which is really gross. It's like octopus eyes. Yes. And, like, <laughs> and really gross stuff. And there's this just funny, he's always like, this chow here is really good, you know? <laughs> and, and so, and at the same time, it's marked with all this darkness, meaning um, basically everybody on the ship is sort of heading towards death. And there's all this conflict because of it. And so what Dan said about it be, being utopia that becomes a dystopia is really apt. And um, and I think adds a lot of layers to the film and also what Gore Blimey said about how how much it sort of feels like 2020. This movie could have been made in 2020 because all the metaphors uh, ring so true of what's happening today in England and in America. And so so Goliath the Waits does, is doing all these different things that are really interesting to me. And I think you're right. It does have a very quick pace and it, it balances the darkness and the light really well. And, um, and I, and I love that it's so many amazing actors. So like one of the things I did when I started to make my notes was I just made a list of all the actors that were, had sizable parts and the list goes on quite a ways, right? Because, you know, you have everybody from Christopher Lee to John Carradine to Frank Gorshin to Robert Forrester to Alex Cord to Eddie Albert to John McIntyre and Jeanette Nolan, who play the Bartholomews, to Jean yes. Marsh, Duncan Rieger, Emma Sams, even Laurie Lathine, you know? These are all, yes. like, great names and faces that we all recognize. And, and they all are really good, you know, in it. And so it's just... so. It, you can watch it a number of different ways. Like you can watch it and be like, Oh my God, look at all this stuff that's happening in the subtext. It's really fascinating. Or you could be like, Oh my God, these are just all my favorite actors, you know, <laughs> in this really great adventure yeah, story. Yeah. And so, so it walks that line really well. I think a movie that we talked about and Frank Gorshin was in, it was death car on the freeway. Yeah. And yeah. death car on the freeway is a movie you can watch a couple different ways because it has a lot of subtext. It's really meaty and interesting to dive into, but it's also a really great movie with great car chases and car accidents and big explosions. And, and I think that Goliath Waits does it as well. And I think some of the best TV movies are the movies that it managed to do that so that you can think about the movie if you want, or you can just sit back and just admire the shirtless guys or, you know, the set design, <laughs> or, you know what I mean? Like there's so much to enjoy about it. And so this is a movie I always really like to return to. And like I said, I've watched it three times. It's not one you, you watch over and over because it is so long, but yeah. it does have a rewatchability to it that I really enjoy. And not every movie has that, especially miniseries. You know, they're really hard to go back and watch over and over again. So this one does a really good job of it. So I guess we should talk a little bit about some of the stories yeah. that are happening. Cause I don't know if a lot of people listening have taken the time to watch the whole thing. And so, um, we might want to not walk them, walk them through it. But um, I will tell you that this came out on VHS. I don't know when, I guess in the eighties or nineties in a truncated version. And they excised a couple of the subplots. And I think the one subplot that they took out was the one with the paper from the Nazis that oh, was supposed okay. to go to the States. And the way they chopped it up apparently makes it kind of incoherent. Cause I think there's portions of it have remained in ah. to the edited version. And so if you read the reviews on Amazon for the VHS release, a lot of people were confused by the stories um, because they tried to cut it into a feature length format. And so if you are interested in watching this movie, it's very important that you watch the three hour version, no matter how you find it. Um, it yeah. did air on the mystery channel in its full form, which was an encore uh, station. And so that's the only way to really watch it. I've never seen the truncated version. I can't imagine it's very good. So I think Dan covered a lot of the subplots, but I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about Maria because she's important to the story. Uh, but also the, the bow people. 
we haven't really talked about them too much. And I think that they're really interesting. Duck and Rigger's character. And then maybe some more about Christopher Lee and what's happening on the ship. Because there is so much happening. And it's interesting because while all of this is going on on the Goliath, there is a lot of, like, cut to topside, right? Where we see what um, Eddie Albert's character, who is Adam, yeah. uh, I'm sorry, Admiral Wiley Sloan. Sloan, yes. Right. It's really interesting. So so just briefly, one of the things I like about this movie is we clearly have a bad guy in this film, um, yeah. which is Wesker. But then we have some gray area bad guys, right, like Goldman and, um, and McKenzie. Yeah. But then we don't get a lot of antagonism from a lot of people like you think you might. Like, for some reason, I was under the impression the first time I watched this that Eddie Albert's character was going to be a, a real sort of wrench in the machine, you know? Like, they were going to do something with him where he was going to prevent a lot of progress from happening because of that note or whatever. But he's actually very much like in it to win it. Like once they realize yes. once Robert Forrester phones him back and he's like, look, there's people on the ship and there's like 300 of them and they're alive and we need to bring them up. The Admiral goes all over the world to get these decompression chambers. Yes. And yes. Yeah. They bring the world together to, to save all these people. And he's very much about like, the care of the people that he sent down there and the care of the people that are left on the ship. And I love that. I love when you think a character's not going to be played out a certain way, when you're sure he's going to be the bad guy or something's going to happen with him. And he ends up being like uh, playing along, you know, and being the good guy is always really nice. And Eddie Albert's great and everything. And he wears a lot of cardigans. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The thing I, I, I love too, is there's, there's a great moment near the end where stuff is going on and, and Robert Forrester's character is like, okay, we're, we're going to come up, uh, you know, we're going to submerge in a, wait a minute, not, uh, we're going to come up to the, the surface in, in a moment. You're going to come up now. Okay. Yeah. And yes. he's waiting for Mark Harmon and Emma Sams to show up. And he's like, you're going to come up now. You need to come up now. It has to happen. Right. Uh, okay, sir. We're going to come, you come up right now. I'm sorry, sir. We can't hear you. Uh, you're breaking <laughs> up. Oh, you can hear me just fine. You come yes, up. Sir. And, and it's, 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 a, it's a great moment where he's doing that. I can't, I can't. You're breaking up, sir. Slow, this is Selkirk here. You all set, Jeff? I'm in the PC-16, sir, but I'm waiting for Cabot and Leah. Surface, Commander. Sir, according to my calculations, we got at least a couple of minutes before we got to get out of here. That's cutting it too close. Surface. Hey! 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 Watch Wait, it! Commander! Respond, Commander! Sir, you're... Transmission's garbled, sir. Repeat. I do not hear you. You'll read me loud and clear. Surface. But he's just at the other end going, he's like, I'm Eddie Albert. I know these shenanigans. Knock it off. And it's, it's yeah, he's a, he's a fun character because, yeah, he starts off and he's going to, like, he's, he, I, I, I like Eddie Albert. He has that, well, obviously, Green Anchors is one of my favorite TV shows, but he, he, he's got that Eddie Albert sort of a, when he was in Colombo and he played the um, yeah. general or whatever it was in Colombo, he has this very authoritative thing, but he also can be taken down very easily as you saw in green acres for six seasons. So I, ju- I just love seeing him and stuff. And, and he's great. Like you said, he, he, you, you think briefly that he's going to go sort of mercenary on you and maybe do something uh, unpleasant, but he's, he literally, he, we don't have enough depression, a uh, uh, compression, de- you know, we don't have enough chamber depression. We don't have enough, um, chambers to, to fit all the people, sir. Well, go around the world. We'll get them. And it was just, it's just a really lovely, you know. Yeah, I really like watching all that stuff. Um, so I think, I, you know, I wrote a review of this in my book and I didn't go back and look at it, but I kind of 
think that a lot of that stuff with the, I don't know what they call them, submersiles or those little tiny submarines that go down. Yeah, those things. And also the big boats. I think some of that was stock footage or taken from something else. And the way the director, Kevin Connor merges it is really beautiful because it looks very uh, much a part of the film. But I think that whole, like when we're watching them get set up to go under for the first time, and I think some of the topside stuff was um, taken from either other films or maybe Navy footage, something like that. There's some history to that that footage. It's really interesting. Um, and so so we actually get to see what's happening above, too, although that's, that's not a huge portion of the film. But I think it's kind of important because I do like the way it portrays um, the Admiral and kind of the people up there and how they're working. Um, in a way, it's maybe very pro-patriotic, which it would have been in 1980 because we were right in the middle of that go, go, go America sort of vibe. And it sort of fits into that very yeah. well. Yeah. Um, but then what's happening down below is that it's kind of a very soap opera. There's all these things that are happening between the characters and and there's a lot of dynamics and stories. And I really like the Bartholomew. So I just want to briefly mention that the actors who played them were John McIntyre and Jeanette Nolan. And you probably know those two actors if you look them up just by their face because they were in so many things. But you may not have known that they were actually a real-life married couple. And oh. they appeared in a lot of stuff together as my married couple, which I really love. And of course I can't think of anything offhand, but they did do a lot of stuff together. And, um, and they were really interesting to me too, because so one of the things we find out later, as I mentioned that if you become too sick or too old or too feeble, then you get Palmer's disease. Right. Yeah. But these two yes. characters were older and not working and they got to stay. And I think this ties into, um, Gorblimey touching on the class systems yeah. on the ship, which are very clear because he's a Senator or a governor or something like that. And, um, and, so it's interesting that they are sort of upheld in a certain way where a lot of other people on the ship aren't that are younger than them even. Right. And so they make for an interesting comparison to like a character like Maria. So Maria is Emma Sam's best friend. She's Leah's best friend. She's adorable. Floyd Athene. And she works in, um, is she part of the aquatic? I can't remember. There's all these different, I it's, forget. it's almost like, yeah, a, I can't um, remember. Yeah. what do they call that when you're born in India? It's not a class system. It's okay. a system. Caste system. Cast, you caste can't, system. Yeah, you, yeah. you can't get out of it. You're born into that system, and then that's the job that you have for the rest of your life on the Goliath. So she, she has a certain job that her whole family apparently has, and so she grew up doing it. And while she's getting some stuff for her job, she's picking up vegetables. Or I can't remember what it is now, but she ends up taking a tumble off this sort of high pillar. And just to re- really, uh, just a brief mention, the stunt person... I know the stunt woman. It's interesting. I know Lori Lathane in real life. And I actually have a quote from her about this movie. She, I contacted her about it and she gave me some information. Um, but also, this, I know the stunt woman who does her stunt, which is hilarious. So her name is Marnine Fields. And that's the woman that's actually falling off the ledge. But it's interesting because, because she, I'm not really sure how injured she is. But she really tries to play it down for Mackenzie because he comes to visit her. And she's like, you know, I'll be walking tomorrow. So... I'm okay. Mm. And you, you're not really sure if she's saying that mm. or or if she's really going to be okay. I don't think it's ever clarified. How are you feeling? Where's Mama? I'm right here, darling. What did Dr. Goldman say? She can't walk, Mr. McKenzie. It seems that the, the fall must have injured her. A nerve in some way, just temporarily. I can walk tomorrow, Mr. McKenzie. I promise. Of course you will. We'll have you up and about on your feet in no time at all. 
can work in the aqua pools. I don't have to stand there. We'll find some place, don't you worry. As a matter of fact, Leah is going to look after you herself. Now you'd like that, wouldn't you? Yes. Now, the next time I see you, I want to see a big, big smile. No more tears. All right? You can tell she's scared, and I think everybody on the on the ship kind of knows what Palmer's disease really is, and she knows that if she doesn't get well soon, it's kind of the end for her. Mm-hmm. And um, and I don't know that I don't know that Mackenzie knows that. It's, yeah, with with the Wesker character, it's after a time, it's tough to tell what mm-hmm. it is because because mm-hmm. he because Wesker shows up like almost immediately to take care of Laura Lathine's character, which seems. She's young, you know. It's it's he's not a doctor, you know. It's it, he shows up very quick. He he almost he almost you want to say he almost shows up to give us a cliffhanger at the end of part one, but I'm not going to say that. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but you know, it's it's also something that Lithine, uh, Lori Lithine's character does that I really like is um, so he's approaching her and she's obviously terrified, but she's calling out for her mom, and it's kind of this heart wrenching moment, you know, where she kind of realizes what's happening, and she's powerless to do anything about it, and I thought it was really well done, and I thought he was really scary, and I, I just love that scene. And she, and she does kind of move, she doesn't move a lot, but she does kind of back away from him yes. slightly, so I'm thinking, okay, so she can move, I don't know how her legs are working, but she, she can move, so so it's not, maybe she's better than they think she is or or yeah yeah i think it's an introduction to to the the fact that if you even for 10 seconds stop serving a purpose on the goliath yeah you you become an undesirable and i'm guessing that a lot of the people that became the bow people or bow people i guess they call them are may have been undesirable at some point and they needed to escape right and we don't know because we only know Duncan Rieger's character. And I don't know if he ever really clarifies how he becomes sort of the lead rebel of the ship. Or what, or what happened to his shirt is one of the things because he seems to have an allergy <laughs> yeah. to wearing one. It's hilarious because when they take him <laughs> Even off. Even in the end, yeah. Yeah, in the end when he comes up to, into the decompression chamber submarine thing, he's like got his shirt off. And I'm like, he's going to be in the decompression chamber for like eight days like that. And I want to be in that chamber with him. <laughs> Is that was, possible? What, what, whenever, what, whenever I saw him, I kept thinking of of two um, two things: a uh, Fresno, Gregory Harrison's character in Fresno, who's the um, mysterious man who always has his shirt off, <laughs> and uh, the uh, Zucker Abram Zucker film uh, Top Secret, when Val Kilmer and and the leading lady meet the head of the rebels, like the French rebels, <laughs> and it's the the super hunky guy with the oiled up chest and everything who, ne- who never puts a shirt on. Well, no, he I think he may, might later in the movie, but but that's kind of what I thought of this kind of great guy who's like even in the end when everyone's running around, no one says, "Hey, man, you." Do you want a shirt? No, I'm fine. Look at me. <laughs> enjoy, enjoy me. I am here for your enjoyment. Sorry, I, I couldn't. Um, his, his face, I don't think I could recognize him in a lineup if he had clothes on. Because I don't think I really got to see his face because your eyes are just drawn yes. away. You know, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was really like slick and oiled like through the whole thing. Oh, yes. But, 
but like yeah. to go to go back to why I think he's kind of important too. He's sort of like Maria's character in a way, in that they capture him. So so I wonder what I want to say is at the beginning when the bow people or bow people. I always want to say bow people when the bow people first show up. I love it because it is very adventurous. They're like sliding off vines and yes. stuff, you know, and it's like horns are playing or something, and it's very much like watching a fifties <laughs> adventure or something. It's amazing. But when he gets captured and brought back over to the other side of the ship or whatever, they're like, okay, let's execute him. And it's so heartless, right? Like, he's just this young guy with this sort of political ideology that doesn't go along with you. And I don't know that they've really hurt anybody at this point. But, like, you're just going to execute him? And it's so... So in that way, Mackenzie is very cold-hearted, right? Christopher Lee does something that I, I noticed the second time where he has his cap off when he's talking to Mr. Hunky. And, and, but the moment he says you're going to be executed he puts the cap on and that used to be the british thing when they would oh. uh when there was a death sentence they had it was it's not the death cap i i forget what it's called but it was like it was actually like a square cloth or something and when they would uh say you know you're sentenced to death or by hanging or whatever they would put this on their head and, and so you knew like that was like that was you were dead you know, that that's how the death penalty was carried out. And there hasn't been the death penalty there for ages, but that's the way they used to. And I actually think that's I know that from Monty Python. Yeah. Um, oh. <laughs> the Monty Python episode where Graham Chapman makes a joke about how he's going, he's moving from uh, England to South Africa because they still have the death penalty there. And they, they mentioned the, um, <laughs> they, they, wow. and, and so, so that, so that's, it, it was a nice moment because he, he has the cap off and he's talking to him. And then the moment he, says you're going to be executed he puts the hat on very mm. like i don't i don't have the cap or whatever but i'm going to put my hat and i thought oh that's nice that's a nice yeah, touch yeah you know it's interesting that you bring that up because i'm starting to think of mckenzie as somebody who's like living out a role and not necessarily being themselves mm. do you know what i mean like like he's doing things but it, it, sometimes it feels like there's an act to them mm -hmm. you know yeah. like when he goes to visit the children and, like, there's something about him where he feels like I have to be this benevolent leader all the time. And and sometimes you wonder if there's an actual Mackenzie inside of him or if it's just this role that he's playing. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that kind of adds to that idea, for me anyway, um, about that. And um, um, I don't know if there's other stories we need to talk about, but I just thought the Bow people were really fun. So he gets, he gets saved from the execution and he gets to go back to his that he's leading and we find out that Emma Sands is sort of this undercover rebel right mm -hmm. that like yeah. she's torn between the love from her father whom she respects greatly and believes that he's done wonderful things but also that there are these people who haven't been heard that also deserve something too right and yeah. so she helps them when she can and it's never clarified whether or not her and Riker had an affair uh, Mackenzie really tries really hard to lay out her innocence yes right to, to Harmon's character, and you're not quite sure if he's saying that for his own benefit or if he if that's a true thing, right? So we don't really know if Emma Sams has had this sort of affair with him or not, which I think is really interesting because she does come across as very innocent to me in a lot of ways. Um, and I kind of believe Mackenzie when he said that, but at the same time, she goes above and beyond. But then at the end, it feels like they're gonna she's going to end up with Mark Harmon, and Riker doesn't seem all that bent out of shape about it. So yeah. Bent so out of shape, is that like a Ben's kind of joke? It is. <laughs> that's my joke of the week. Yeah, that's my <laughs> And, and th th that, that sequence with the bow people has, has one of my favorite moments in it with the regarding the SOS 
and where you realize oh, that yeah. where the yes. SOS came That's where right. the SOS came from, and that you realize that the the last two words that were SOSed at them, they kind of didn't realize that they were linked together. And I I, I don't know if we're going to say what that I, I said yes, it earlier. Yes, I, do it. Oh okay, because it's because uh, it's what well like uh, three hundred people Goliath awaits um, air toxic beware, and then Mackenzie. Oh who's Mackenzie? But it's actually beware Mackenzie. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and it, it comes off like um, beware, you know, yours truly Mackenzie. That's yes. right. sort of how yes. they take it. But it's actually beware, which is a lovely, I love when they do that, where it's like, you know, uh, just we, we missed a little bit of punctuation or a pause or something there and we, we got it wrong. So that's a lovely moment. Yeah. So I wanted to talk really quickly about, I don't know if either one of you have read Nathaniel Hawthorne's um, novella Benito Serino. Oh, no. I haven't read that one. So he's very verbose, and I'm, I'm not sure I'm yes. in love with Nathaniel Hawthorne, but um, I read a, I read one of his stories, and I'm just doing this off the top of my head, and I think maybe Dan said something that made me think about it, or maybe go, I can't remember exactly what you guys said to make me want to reference this, but Benito Serino is about a, a white captain, um, who I think he's a captain, who ends up on a ship, and he's not a part of the ship. Like, something happens with his ship or something, and so he ends up on this other ship who either rescues him or maybe he's visiting for some reason. And there's slaves on the ship. And I don't want to say too much about it, but there's all this stuff that he's being told that when you go back and think about it, it's that beware Mackenzie. It's like it's it has a different meaning than what he initially um, oh. ingests the meaning as. And then you find out that something else is happening on the ship with the slaves and it's really fascinating and dark and disturbing and moving and it's a really great story and so when you were talking whatever i wish i could remember what one of you said that made me <laughs> think about it but it's about how everything is not what it seems right and yeah. sometimes you see things the way you want to see them and not the way they really are yeah. so you know one of the things about them when they came down especially robert for so robert forrester's character once he realizes there's people on the ship, he's all about helping them, right? And mm -hmm. I I think at first, I mean, they do become very skeptical as it goes on, but I think at first they really want to see the best in everybody, right? And so yes. they don't understand these things that are happening with Mackenzie, but then everything starts to take on double meanings, right, as the film progresses. And then both Harmon and Forrester's characters start to recognize that there's something way more sinister happening and that they have to get off the ship, right? And um, and I love that because if you go back and watch it a second time, maybe it's a little, maybe a better reference since I don't know if everybody's read Benito Serena, would be Barton Fink. Because if you go back and rewatch Barton Fink, you really can tell what's happening because there's all these clues that are telegraphed in the dialogue between yes. John Goodman's character and John Turturro's character that you don't pick up the first time you watch it. But then when you know how it's going to end, you're like, oh, hey, it's, that's really yeah, interesting. It's, it's it's really uh, that that's one of the things like I uh, apart from a few um, uh, problems here and there it's really like a well written and well structured um, script I mean they really did a nice job putting it together oh 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 I'm sorry I have got one thing I want to ask and I um, okay. Scotch boil Scotch boilers what do we all think of Scotch boilers. <laughs> There's something that stood out to me because I'd never heard of them. And it just, my first thought was, is this like a still, like in the Waltons with the Baldwin <laughs> sisters or something, uh, where they're making scotch, pr probably green scotch made from seaweed or something to match the wine. 
Well, uh, first of all, you made a Walton's reference, and I love you forever. (laughs) The Baldwin sisters, I was like, oh, yes, I love them. I don't remember the Scotch Boilers, I have to be honest, so you'll have to Uh, tell me. The the joy of Mackenzie, I think, well, I don't know if joy is the right word, but one of the cool things about Mackenzie is that he has this sort of godlike thing, and everyone loves what he's doing, but he's also, like, constantly patching all these bits that, like, it's good, we're going to fall apart here, we're going to fall apart there. And when he tells everyone how they survived he says we were saved by the fact that the goliath had scotch boilers and i don't know what that is that sounds like maybe like like a haggis or something that you you don't want to really eat kind of thing i don't know what it was but scotch boilers are actual boilers i think the titanic had them and they're like really because uh they mention all like the smokestacks or whatever on top of the goliath and and the scotch boilers are like really heavy duty things now i went online and thought let me read about scotch boilers and i can tell you all about them it turns out that my ability to learn about boilers on ships is very limited i got about two <laughs> paragraphs into reading and i was like i'm so bored but they're, they're really I, I and i actually googled goliath awaits scotch boilers and didn't come up with much i was hoping i'd get the the link um because he he very much goes in there saying all right we survived because of the scotch boilers i was like of course scotch egg no scotch boilers yeah and so 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 it's it's I, I one of the things about the movie is that I am completely convinced by all the sort of techno babble that they have in the movie about pressurization and scotch boilers and how they did this. I don't know if any of it's true. <laughs> but but one of the things with a movie like this is you have to you hope you accept it. Right. Because if if it feels off, then you're gonna spend the whole movie like looking at Frank Gorshin and hoping he doesn't speak. Hoping he just gives you that evil look. <laughs> I I do yeah. think now that I'm thinking about my review of the book, uh, my review in my book oh, for this movie, I do think that they actually did a lot of research. I feel like the director actually brought on a consultant for some of the stuff that they were oh. doing to make it more realistic. That's my memory now. Although when I redid the research this time, I don't remember. I remember then coming across news articles that were actually about some of the science of Goliath the Weights. Mm. Now I didn't see anything, and I'm not sure why, but. Um, I think maybe that was Google newspapers and now I'm using newspapers.com and maybe they're just pulling up different entries. But like, um, I do think that they did bring on a technical consultant Now, whether or not any of this is actually real. I think they did have somebody come on to help make it sound real at least. And it does like a lot of it sounds like, Hey, look what he did. Okay. I will <laughs> buy it. I'll buy it. And something else you brought up about it being, um, such a good story and structured so well is that I was positive that Goliath Waits must have been adapted from a novel because it is so intricate, but it wasn't. This is a full original story. And I'm really impressed with the level of detail that is in that because um, I'm not saying TV movies don't go into any level of detail, but they don't always have a lot of time to do it. Here they get three hours, so that helps. But like, they really kind of thought about a lot of the ins and outs. Like, cause there is like a long sequence of them going through the Goliath and selling, this is how we did this. This is how we did that. This is what these people do here. This is what we do here. And it was really, really well thought out. And, and to, to the certain kind of minutia where you do believe that it could happen, even if a lot of the science is pseudoscience. Um, and so the people who put this together, and I'll talk a little bit about them just briefly, they did an amazing job with that. You know, creating universes are really hard, especially I think in novels it may be easier because you have a lot more time and also you have the reader's imagination. 
which helps. And you don't actually have to create a visual yourself. You can lead the visual, but you don't have to fully create it. But when you're making movies, especially a TV movie where your budgets aren't going to be as high as like George Lucas gets or Spielberg, to create a universe like you do with Goliath the Weights is really impressive, I think. Yeah, they did. They actually did really well with a lot of the production values as well, which was quite surprising for a TV movie type thing. I mean, the the model work, you know, with the the you know when they use little models of things, yes. was, was quite yeah. good, you know. And mm-hmm. um, and the opening part when you've got the the torpedo hits and then you've got the water gushing through, and yes. was actually yes. really quite impressive. You know, it's not what you'd expect for something on a really small budget. I mean, um, you know, they 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 also took some shortcuts and used footage from i don't know whether it's stock footage or other other movies like you said but um but apart from that they did quite well and the interiors and that were good i think i read online that they'd used the queen mary for some of them but yes but mm. they whatever they did whether it was that or whether they dressed somewhere else up when they like the swimming pool with all the yes. plants and things that looked yes. really good you know yeah, they did, did a really good job of, of making it believable for what it was yeah, it was. It's a really beautiful looking movie. Um, I don't know, Dan. Did you want to add to that? I think you guys have, have said most of what I thought. I I never, I I was always convinced by what was going on. Whether it was the um, the submersibles, whether it was um, the, uh, the 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 interior of the the Goliath itself. Yeah, they they do a they do a really nice job. I don't know what the budget on. I mean, I I imagine on yeah, miniseries, on miniseries, I would imagine they had probably more but i don't know that i'm just making that up but they i was convinced i mean i still don't like mark Harmon's mustache all that much um but um i don't think it was a budget thing maybe that was just honest um, when he's wearing those trousers i don't think anyone's looking at the mustache (laughs) you know i'll be honest i didn't notice that at all and i don't know what that says about me but there were a couple scenes where where robert forster was in his uniform Mm -hmm. and he had his back to the audience oh boy yeah i did notice that um <laughs> so so i guess i was looking at something else <laughs> i i can can i there there was the the one thing with mark Harmon. It, well he he's a bit of a strange character in this because he uh setting aside his his dealings with uh emma sam's character he he is the one as as the movie goes along and robert forster's character is becoming is is like is he's sort of is implacable the word i don't know he's he's very he he keeps it together at all times you know there's a there's a moment where like right when they're about to rescue everyone you know um mckenzie reveals that he has the diplomatic pouch and he reveals what's on it and it's like whoa okay that that could be a problem and and so i want you to tell them that we none of us want to go to the surface tell your president this and um and robert forster basically says yes sir okay sir all right well i think um that um request is contemptible and i'm going to speak for my president and say no and it's very it's very nice because it's like who's you know apart from peter cushing who can sort of stare down christopher lee apparently it's robert forster which i which i which i which i completely bought Uh, but but mark Harmon's character i think becomes tricky because as the as you get into like the last hour and they're trying to evacuate everyone. Robert Forster is very much like, okay, folks, here's what we have to do. You're going to go in the water. It's just going to be for a little bit of time. Hold on to the rope. You're going to get here. But Mark Harmon's character is just like, 
and I'm going to back up from my mic slightly. He's always kind of in the back, like, um, we got to get off of here. You got, what are you doing? And he's always yelling. And it's like the, the closer you get to the end of the movie, the more he's like, people are like, no, we're not going to go. Are you crazy? You have to go. And it's, it's just, it's just gets so weird that they chose to have this character who, who at the beginning, Robert Forster's like, mm, maybe your health isn't so great. Maybe you shouldn't be here. And by the end, he's like, he's yelling at these people who have been here for, 20 30 40 years you know um and and it's it's just it's a strange choice that i mean i guess he's uh, anxiety and panic obviously you're uh, but but it's it's a strange choice that they had him do he gets more histrionic as he goes towards the end and then he kind of um jeopardizes everyone by going after emma sams and um well uh, it's funny (laughs) it's funny that you said that because you sent in an email to me that he does have these histrionics. And then I was like, oh, I don't know if I remember that. And I started to think back through the movie, and I was like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes, I agree. <laughs> like, I could start to think about the moments where he does that. But I guess that's why he wasn't right for the for the Navy, right? Because yes. he is, emotion comes before everything else, where I think in Forrester's characters, are great. they work well together. But Forrester's whole point is that, you're right, he he keeps his cool through everything. And he kind of, he kind of, on the on the on a toss of a dime can like figure things out like what yep. the solution is for every problem whereas mark Harmon, i think is being more led by his heart at this point so i guess that's why they have it that way i think one of the things i i found slightly amusing about that whole thing is that i think emma sams thinks the same about um about mark Harmon because <laughs> at the end when he's rescuing her and he's got her over his shoulder because she's unconscious and he's running around corners and swinging around you can see she's actually got her elbows around her ears even though she's unconscious because there's a good danger she's going to have her head whacked on one of those walls <laughs> oh emma um oh. So I think maybe since we started, Dan brought up the evacuation, we should talk about the end. And so we're going to be spoilery here because I think it's important to talk about what happens to some of the characters. Uh, Because I think that, um, so what happens is they start evacuating people, but there is like a handful of people who refuse to leave, including Christopher Lee. um, Because for whatever reasons, one, because they're buying into Christopher Lee's um, sort of... uh, jargon that they're going to be freaks. I guess Wesker kind of starts that sort of idea that yeah. they're going to be in cages and that people are going to want to come and like poke sticks at them or whatever, because there's these freaks that came from under the water. And, um, and so some of these people are really kind of buying into that. And there's one guy, I don't even know the character's name. He's, he only really shows up at the end, but he keeps saying, I'm going to wait for Mackenzie. Right. Like, and like, he'll lead us, he'll tell us what to do. And also he's built this heat, Thing that's going to keep us going and Mark Harmon keeps saying no it's not it's going to destroy you it's going to explode the ship and you're going to die and yet they choose to stay but it's interesting because you can see why Mackenzie stays back but then there's a couple of very important characters who stay on the ship as well um, and that includes Dr. Goldman who's Jean Marsh and that was really sad but you could mm. tell that like um, it was sort of penance right for all the things that she had let slide because she does confess to Alex Court's character he comes up to her and he's like you know that bad things are happening on the ship. Why are you letting this happen? And she's and she's like, I didn't know what to do. You know, I just looked the other way, she says. And so she feels like all that guilt that she'd been yeah. suppressing all those years on the ship. Yeah, very poignant, yeah. Yeah, I have to stay behind. I'm going to have to help you put this on. No, I've decided to stay. Why? This will be easier to deal with. Easier than living? For me, yes. 
Come on, get into this. You can always kill yourself later. Put no, your... Doctor. I really have decided. I believe you. And it's really heart-wrenching because because even though Dr. Goldman does do these things that I think are really difficult to understand, you still really like the character. I think that a lot of that is to do with her performance as well, though. I do yeah. think that a lot of credit is... That's what I was saying earlier. I think if, if someone else had done that who hadn't have been Jean Marsh, there's a danger that you could have mm-hmm. just think, oh, okay. Um, but because of the way she she gives that person kind of humanity in a way the way she she brings that character to life you do kind of feel for her even though yeah um you know even despite all of that yeah it's really it's really kind of a difficult moment for me to watch in the film and but the one that really breaks my heart is john carradine so at the very mm. end they're they're getting out they can only get so many people per those little mini submarines and so they have them all lined up and and Bentley is the character's name, played by John Carradine. Um, he goes and he's helping them, right? Get everybody in line and keeping them calm. He's sort of the calming force on this ship, right? He's good with everybody. He's very likable. Um, again, he's an older person. I guess he does serve a purpose because of the children, right? He's always performing for the children and stuff and mm-hmm. keeping them occupied. At the end, they've gotten everybody. I, I think even Riker's gone, which would be the Duncan Rieger bow guy the, i think everybody's gone and and carradine's left and robert forster says to him i think it's robert forster he's like it's time for you to go and he's like no no i'm gonna stay behind well why right and he said well because people are used to the way i am when i was on yeah. um these films and this virile young man and i might as well just keep that going and and my time is done and i'm here and i'm ready to die and you're just like Oh my God, this is really ripping my heart out. Number one, because this moment for me in John Carradine's career, I think is is a really interesting moment because at this point he was doing a lot of B-movies and he was sort of becoming like the guy who showed up for two seconds in a movie because that's all they could afford it for him. And here he's given a really amazing role that allows him to show what a wonderful actor he really is. And I'm not saying that in those B-movies he's not great because he is, but this is a film, I think, in a way, I don't want to say it's his target's, but it's a movie that comes sort of in that era where he was being put into these lower budget films, being allowed to show what a tremendous actor he really still was. And so that end for him is like, because he's such a lovable character, you're like, no, you got to go, you got to go. And you think they're going to convince him, but they just let him make his decision. And he goes and joins everybody else who decides to stay on the ship, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just so hard. But then there's also this really weird moment sort of in between the rescues where one person freaks out and they jump in the water and then there's like chaos. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, I think that's just there for filler because I don't fully understand why they're freaking (laughs) out. And then they stop freaking out, right? And then they... (laughs) It's a disaster film thing, I guess. You gotta up the up the tension every once in a while. Yeah, you can't figure. And did you guys recognize that the little boy that goes first is Kirk Cameron? Oh yes, ah, yeah. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he's really good in it. You know, he's adorable, but he's not in the rest of the film. It's just so funny to have this kid sort of because the little girl's in it with the couple mm-hmm. who work in the aqua room. But um, but like. He just shows up with his grandmother or somebody, and then and then he's like he has a little conversation with them, and then he goes, and that's it. And you're like, that's Kirk Cameron, guys. 
Yeah. And he's like seven. I had no idea he'd been acting for something. And I'm so glad he saved Christmas. Have you guys seen that movie? <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, it's, it's something else. Yeah. Oh, he yeah. turned out to be something else, but he Thank was a really Kirk. cute kid. Thank you, Kirk. Remember so when anyway, his best friend was named Boner? I do. That's right. <laughs> that's right. I used to oh, love that man. show so much. Um, so most of the people that we follow through the story get off the ship. And then um, after everything happens and they all, and then there's that scene where like they have to wait for Mark Carmen to get Emma Sam's because she can't figure out whether or not to stay behind or go because her dad has stayed behind. And that's also really poignant because he goes to the aqua room and he's just kind of by himself. Right. And that's something that I think has haunted him. This idea of being alone and that everything he created was going to disappear. Right. And so it's, it's kind of a sad moment. And, but Emma Sam's decides to go with them you know, go with Mark Harmon's character and to live. And I think Mackenzie wanted her to go and everything. So the very last shot of the film is so poignant because they come up right from underneath the sea and she sees the sun for the first time. Yeah. Yes. And that's kind of where the movie ends. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and she just is like, it's beautiful. And it's just this really kind of sweet ending to the film, even though everybody at the bottom just like fucking died. Blew up. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so it's got this really interesting ending. Um, and what did you guys think of the ending? Um, I, it, it was fine, but I was kind of waiting to know what happened next. Um, I wanted to know mm. what happened, what they made of this new world where, you know, people don't do the Lambeth Walk and, and stuff like this, and they don't play as <laughs> awful records. Um, and, uh, you know, but also where people have clothes that wear out after 40 years and don't fall, you know, and this sort of thing. <laughs> um, but I'd love to know, and I'd also love to know what the world makes of them. Although it would be interesting because they have the fastest news service I've ever seen. Um, like in one scene, somebody will mention there's 307 people down there, and then it's on the news. So it's like, how did he get there that fast, and how are they telling the news? But, but uh, no, I would have really loved to know. I was really curious to know what happened next. That was all. It's just, it ended and it felt like it was a good place to end it, but I was just wanting to know a bit more. That was all. That's the sequel, Goliath Awaits 2, this time is personal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it would have been a very different different genre, I guess, um, part two. Um, reintroducing or introducing these people to our world as it were yeah. and um because because i think um uh is i is it is mark Harmon or i forget one of them when they talk about the music what what's the music like up there well we have disco or, or something and i think well maybe an 80 maybe maybe in 81 you're a little you do have yes. disco technically but you're you're phasing yeah. out of the disco now. i did uh, you know but, loud uh, at that yeah, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. i'd love to i'd love oh i'm sorry well, even just color film, right? Like television, oh, true, like yeah. could you imagine all of the stuff that that would have been so new to them just in like the 40 years that it passed? Yeah. 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 And they would have gone up and, and watched uh, like uh, someone would have showed them an episode of Dallas or something like that. Ooh. Oh, like or Dynasty or Dynasty. That would be funny. Yeah. Like, Sam's Dyn- watched yeah, that. Yeah. that would really freak oh, her yes. out. <laughs> oh, yeah, because she's on it, right? Yeah. Because she replaced yeah. Malin yeah. from the later on. That's funny. That's going to be on General Hospital or just started on General Hospital. So Emma Sam's, this movie actually caught um, a couple actors right before they really broke out because this was Mark Harmon before St. Elsewhere, but after 240 Roberts. So, like, he was known to audiences but he wasn't famous yet you know was, and same with and I, I think the same with Emma Sams and I, I was going to say I, I forget what, which episodes of Battle of the Network stars Mark Harmon is on but he kicks ass on all of them and oh, that's, the Harmon, yeah. that's the Harmon way 
<laughs> he's actually quite a good actor. I think I think the thing about Mark Harmon it, that gets overlooked is that he is so good looking that I think people forget how talented he is. And yeah. he and I talk a lot about actors who use TV movies to escape the sort of pigeonholing that they got in. And Mark Harmon really did it when he played Ted Bundy in The Deliberate Stranger, mm. um, which came after St. Elsewhere or during St. Elsewhere, where people were like, it was his Legend of Lizzie Borden, right? Where people were like, oh my God, this is really an amazing performance. And I had no idea that Mark Harmon was like this talented. I think it opened a lot of people's eyes to exactly how talented he was. Mm. Mm. So, I, I don't know, is there anything else we want to add? Uh, I'm, I think... Um Jeez, I think I, I do have a note here that I call Senator um, Bartholomew Senator Chest Pain because whenever That's anything right. big happens, he says, "Oh my God!" Um, but uh, and I and, and I, I and I can't say enough great stuff about Jean Marsh. I um, yeah. uh, she um, uh, apart from Upstairs Downstairs, which I, I watched growing up on on, on uh, public television, uh, she's she appeared on Doctor Who three times. Yes, uh, she oh. was she she played uh, Lady Joanna, uh, King Richard, the Lionheart's um, uh, sister in the Crusades. She played a sort of companion, Sarah Kingdom, who was very much like an Emma Peel kind of character in the Dalek Master Plan, and she played Morgaine, as in Morgaine from the Arthur Legends in Battlefield. In 1989, so she was in the show in like 65, 66, and then in 1989. Wow! And so she she was, and she was also on the nine to five sitcom. Hey, was she really? Yeah, I think she she's like the um uh the sort of not evil but sort of the conniving secretary kind of to the boss, if I remember correctly. Otto, well, we watched those. Now, which version of it was she on both versions? Because you know they they had uh, like I think a network version and then a syndicated version. I, I think it was the network version, but she may have been on both. I'd have to double check hmm. that. Thank yeah, I have to look at that. Yeah, and she um, was in Great Tales from the Dark Side too. Ooh, which one was that? Uh, it's it's I, I haven't watched it in a little while, but it's something like she gets a new apartment in like New York City, and I forget. I think she gets like weird phone calls. I'll ha- I I meant to look it up before, oh. for, but it's ba- it's basically like just her in a room for the entire time, like, and something is like bothering her it's either it's either like strange phone calls or like the people in the next apartment making weird noises i forget but she's very good in it oh gosh i'll have to check that out um so girl is there anything you want to add no not really i think we've sort of covered everything actually that uh, that we were saying um it, no it's um it was a, an interesting one it's probably one that i wouldn't have thought to watch otherwise um i mean we we used to get some miniseries over here um, I mean, some of the big ones we had over here, uh, we had things like, um, I don't know, Scruples and Lace and uh, Roots and, you know, some of the really big ones made it over here, but not all of them. I don't know whether this one did or not. I can't remember whether this one did. I mean, it may be like with the TV movies. We don't have a big culture of them over here, which is why I quite like listening to you guys talk about the actors and things in it, because it's, you know, it's <laughs> a lot of these people I... I might recognise, but I don't really know the names of and things like that. So, uh, you know, so it's an interesting experience to do watch one of these miniseries. Oh, good. Well, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, I thought it might be a movie you liked. So oh, that's yeah. why I wanted to have you on here. And it's great to talk to people who don't necessarily have a frame of reference for TV movies. I'm really fascinated by that. And it's interesting because when I go to England and I do talks about TV movies, 
that's what I hear. I hear, well, we don't really have them, but you guys kind of do. It's just not to the degree that nobody had them to the degree that America had them. And a lot of them were released theatrically, like Duel and um, uh, Is It Stranger in Our House, which became Summer of Fear. Um, I can't remember which the theatrical title was for that. That Mm. Wes Craven, one with Linda Blair, that played theatrically, Terror at London Bridge. But you have a couple, and it's interesting because there was a TV movie that came out, I think, in the early 90s. And I'm only thinking of it now is because I was in Birmingham, and somebody told me that there there weren't really British TV movies. But then um, Rene Abergenois passed away, and I remembered a British TV movie he was in called The Lost Language of the Cranes. Oh, yes. Yes, I remember that amazing film right yeah. and um and kind of controversial i think i think it only aired once over there but and then it came out on video here which is how i saw it but like so you guys do have them it's just and of course the woman in black right you do they exist yeah, yeah. they just they're just like not on every night or even once a week or and, once a month yeah right? and certainly not part of like a, a series like you've had them like the you know the, yeah. the weekly movie kind of thing we don't we never really had that plays but not movies yeah, that's interesting because people have been bringing, and I want to start watching some of those, like Play for Today, I think is one of them, right? Yeah, That yeah. was a thing in England, I, those anthology programs. We had versions of that here too, like U.S. Steel Hour, and um, and some people consider those to be TV movies because they are feature length, but there's there's yeah. a fine line, I think, between what is a TV movie and what is like a play for today. And I, I don't actually know what that fine line is, but I do know that yeah. people make that discrepancy. And so like maybe I need to look at that more but i will tell you one of the reasons why you might not have ever seen goliath the weights and i'm not positive of this because i don't know the whole history of operation primetime but this was produced by a company named operation primetime so i don't know if you guys did any research you noticed that this didn't air on a network um it oh. aired in syndication oh yes and that's yeah what, i saw it yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's what makes it really unique. So Operation Primetime was a company that was had this really neat business model. So basically what they did was they um, went to network affiliates, meaning not ABC in New York, but like um, the ABC station that was, you know, in Kokomo or whatever, and and also independent stations. And they offered them a chance to help produce films. Now, I'm doing this off memory, but so what happens is, is I think Operation Primetime co-produced these ventures um, with big studios, but also with these small stations. And what would happen was, is that a lot of these channels were looking for competition for primetime or some alternative to the primetime programming. And so they would put in some money and then they would get first dibs to show these films. And then I think the films would go to pay cable afterwards. So Goliath awaits what would happen was, so a bunch of different um, channels from all over the country. And there was another company that produced this along with Operation Primetime. It was Columbia Pictures Television, I think. They all put in a little bit of money and then they built the budget and then and then they made the movie and then and then all of these channels had an option to air it. And some of the, what's interesting is that some of the affiliates were network affiliates and they would actually preempt their programmings from the networks that night to show these miniseries and movies that Operation Primetime was producing. Oh. So it, it was a really, really interesting business model, and it was meant to create a fourth network. And it's and so I guess Dumont would be, the Dumont channel would be the, yeah. or DuPont, is it Dumont? Would be the, it's Dumont. Dumont. Yeah, that would be the first fourth channel. But I think Operation Primetime would be uh, one of the early, like, attempts to create another fourth channel, and then Fox came, and they really did create a fourth channel. But 
Um, it, but it was a long time coming. And so Operation Primetime usually did what we would call, I guess, prestigious programming because they did things like, do you remember Sadat with Louis Gossett Jr., Dan? I don't know if you remember. Oh, that. yeah. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. They, they made that. I actually watched that, even though I had no idea who Sadat was, and I still really don't. <laughs> and, um, but, but I love Louis Gossett Jr., Sure. And I remember watching that entire miniseries. They did Helen Keller, The Miracle Continues, which is sort of a sequel, right, to the Helen Keller story. And they also produced um, weekly TV series, which you would have seen in syndication, including Star Search and Solid Gold, which I didn't know until wow. I just started researching it this summer. Yeah, so they were they were doing really well. They, but they also did quirky TV movies, like they did The Girl to Go Watch and Everything. With, oh, I think it was Pam yeah. Dauber, right? I can't remember who Yeah, and Robert Hayes, wasn't it? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Those were fun. And they did, I remember those. Yeah, they're good. And they did, those are based on books. And they did um, a TV movie that I love called Mom, the Wolfman and Me. And everybody thinks that it's about a wolfman, but it's really about David Burning being exquisitely beautiful with this big, beautiful, full beard, wooing Patty Duke. <laughs> You know, and uh, it's told from the Petty Duke's daughter's point of view. It's a really, really great sort of romance movie. Um, uh, and so they were a really interesting sort of corporation. Yes, I'm right. It was Columbia Pictures Television co-produced this with Operation Primetime. So Columbia Pictures Television also did another TV movie the same season called Family Reunion, with, uh, which starred Betty Davis and it aired on NBC. So they also produced... Um, network programming, uh, Columbia Pictures Television did. When I was doing some research on this, I came across a review by John Kenneth Muir, who's a really interesting writer. And it's funny, he reviewed Goliath the Waits. And what's so funny is I read the review and then I was reading the comments and there was this comment on there that said, oh, I really need to see this because I love Emma Sams. And I was like, gosh, that's something I would say. That was my <laughs> comment. I left that comment like 10 years ago. That's what I, so I discovered Goliath the Waits through John Kenneth Muir's website. Um, so he wrote a review of it. So something he said that I made a note of, and Dan, or maybe Girl Blind Me, I don't know if you guys watch Twilight Zone at all, but he said that it reminded him of a Twilight Zone episode from the fourth season called On Thursday We Leave for Home, oh, which starred wow. James Whitmore, directed by oh, Buzz yes. Kulik, who, yep. who did Bad Ronald. Um, and the basic story is it's about the first human space colony that's about to be rescued from uh, a forsaken planet that they've been on for three decades, but their leader's having a hard time accepting that change will happen when they get back to Earth. Ah, yeah. Yeah, yes, very, yes. very similar, right? So he, he compared the two. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to watch that Twilight Zone, so I was hoping maybe one of you guys had seen it. Have no, you? No, I, I, no, uh, probably about eight or nine years ago. I, I and, and yeah, I would I would actually say yeah, that's it. It has kind of a very similar feel to it. Yeah, the uh, yeah, yeah I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, no, no, that's that's I agree. I agree. Okay, cool. Yeah, so if Twilight Zone fans or if anybody wants to check that out, you might want to watch that episode in this with it. And I wish I'd had time. I'm kicking myself. I really wanted to watch it, but. Um, and like Gorblimey said, this was shot on the Queen Mary. Um, some of the bow people were actually played by Queen Mary employees, which is really fun. <laughs> oh, wow. And according to Jean Marsh, some of the cast and crew actually stayed aboard the Queen Mary during the filming. So there was oh, a very nice. contained. That probably helped, actually, for because the, the movie's very contained, right? So I guess to keep everybody kind of contained while they're shooting, it probably added to it, maybe. Yeah. Um, it didn't get great reviews. Cecil Smith of the LA Times said it was hokum. Uh, oh. He called. He said Harmon is like a white knight in flippers. <laughs> but you know, okay. Cecil Smith is very bitter. If you go back through the archives <laughs> of the LA Times, you might find that he sometimes writes things like that. Um, and they're they're pithy, but I don't always agree with them. Yeah. Um, 
So the thing about Operation Primetime is that because it aired in syndication, it could air on any night. So so I think that the uh, IMDb page has it listed as the original air date being no- November 11th, 1981, the first night of airing. I'm guessing November 12th would have been the second night. But, um, but that's just in, I think, the major channels, meaning New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, because I think it could have aired on anytime once it, once the affiliate or the independent station bought it i think they could choose what night they wanted to air it on but because it did premiere in three uh cities on the same night it did really well in the ratings it got in new york a 16.0 slash 24 in la it got a 16.9 slash 26 and in san francisco it got a 19.7 slash 31 which basically means that a quarter to one-third of um audiences in america were watching Goliath the Weights on the Night It Aired, which is really impressive for an independent production, not airing on network television. Um, now, those are all numbers that were reflective of the first episode. I couldn't find numbers for the second episode. It did win a Golden Reel Award for uh, Best Dialogue, Editing, and a Special. That was awarded by the Motion Picture Sound Editors. I personally think it should have won for Art Direction, and we'll talk a little bit about the Art Director here in a second. But So now, it did air in England on ITV via oh, something yeah. called Rich. Yorkshire Television. Do you know Yorkshire Television? Yeah, that's it, yeah. Okay, it landed in the top 10 in many different regions in the UK. So what I will tell you about the ratings in England from my understanding, and maybe you know too, Gorb Lamy, is that they don't do it, well, so I guess the I guess it's UK ratings, right? So it's yeah, it's a bunch yeah. of different countries pushed together. And then, and then the ratings are done by region instead of as a whole. Does that sound right to you? That sounds, I don't know, but that does sound quite likely because, yeah, it would, it, that sounds like how it would be done. Yeah. Yeah. So like, so like in South England, I don't know, I can't remember how they split it up. I guess the Midlands, right, or whatever might be separate from something else. And so, so it might be number one in one region, but it might be number three in another region, right? And so it was hard to understand the numbers. Plus, I think your population, I don't really know the population of the UK, but it seems much smaller than America. Is that right? Probably, yeah, yeah. I'm sure yeah. it would be, yeah. Because it's it's a smaller area, it's like much smaller in in ge- geographically. It's much smaller, yeah. Yeah, a friend of mine just contacted me. He, he lives in London, and he was telling me that he was in um, York recently, and yeah. um, and I said, oh, how far is that? And he said, oh, it's a two hour train ride. And I was like, well, that's like almost going across all of England. Because you can do that in like three or four hours. Like it blows my mind that you can go across the entire country, right? For for here, you would just get to Dallas. Like you'd still be in the state of Texas, right? But you wouldn't be able to get out of the state. So I mean, that's that's how small England is. So um, so the numbers, I don't fully understand how they read them, but I will tell you that it did really well in the ratings. It came in number one, um, and it was part of ITV's highest rated program for that week. Uh, I think the highest rated program was uh, Live and Let Die. Oh, for the month okay. of June. So it, so it aired in oh. June uh, of 1982. Um, and it ran against on BBC One, the 9 o'clock news, and on BBC Two, something called Butterflies. Does that sound oh, familiar? Oh, yes, yeah, that's a sitcom. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a sitcom, yeah. Wendy yeah, Craig, so, yeah. Yeah. So that's what it ran against. It was interesting that all this stuff came up for the English. I don't often get that when I do my research, but apparently yeah. it, it was popular enough to have some sort of notice in the UK, um, like uh, trade papers. Um as Dan mentioned, uh, Kevin Connor, who's the director of this, such an interesting choice, right? Because he did Motel Hell the year before, 
and that's a completely yeah. different film. <laughs> you know? yes. Um, yes. Yeah, he's. I think he's primarily a TV director, but he did do a, a lot those movies you were talking about with Doug McClure and stuff. And maybe he did TV later. But um, he often worked with John Rassenberger, as you noted. He, uh, John Rassenberger was also in Motel Hell, but he was also in Warlords of the Deep and The Arabian Adventure, which were also directed by Kevin Connor. Also, I think Kevin Connor directed an episode of Wizards and Warriors titled Dungeons of Death which also featured John oh. Matzenberger. So they were buddies, um, which is really cool. I think uh, Connor is also a British filmmaker. I think he was born in London. I believe so. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. He began his career working on documentaries in England. Um, his first film was with Amicus. He did Tales from Beyond the Grave. Oh, right. Oh, yes. Yeah. I love those films, yes. <laughs> it just occurred to me, Do you have you guys seen The House Where Evil Dwells? I haven't seen that one. Yeah. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, that's With, um, Eddie Albert's son. Eddie Albert that. Jr., yeah. Ed, yeah, Edward that's Albert. right. Yeah. Edward Albert's in that. It just occurred to me. Um, but With he's the Samurai Ghost. Yeah, or, it's a weird yeah. movie. I love yeah. it, though, because I, I used to play on TV when I was a kid all the time, and I just loved it. Uh, Connor's best known for his miniseries work. Um, so he did North and South, book two, Great Expectations, Marco Polo. I remember Marco Polo. That was huge when it aired. So he, he does a lot of this kind of epic filmmaking. But I think Goliath was his first miniseries. What's interesting is that this would be the last screenwriting credit for... So there were three people involved with creating the story. So Hugh Benson, I think, did the story. And then I think he might have been one of the screenwriters. But the two main screenwriters were Richard M. Bluel. And uh, uh, somebody named Pat Fielder, they mostly did episodic television. This would end up being their last screenwriting credit and also I think their last production credit. So they both also came on as producers. But I think Hugh Benson was the big name attached to it. He did a lot of TV movies. He produced The Eyes of Charles Sand. He did something called A Fire in the Sky with Richard Crenna, which is also kind of an epic sort of TV movie, although that's not, that's not a miniseries, that's a TV movie. He did Contract on Cherry Street, which I think starred Frank Sinatra, and Shadow of a Stranger, which was directed by Richard Friedman, who did Eric Phantom of the Mall. Um, and that's kind of an interesting TV movie with um, Parker Stevenson and Emma Sams, by the way. Uh, the art director was a guy named Ross Bella, who had been nominated for an Oscar. He worked on a movie called The Solid Gold Cadillac, and I'm that's the only note I made about him, but I wanted to make a note of the art direction because it was so good and so consistent throughout the film and really cre- helped create that universe. And he did a really amazing job on this. Oh, what I forgot, I said that this came from Mark Carmen after 240 Robert, but before seeing elsewhere, but he was actually on a nighttime soap called Flamingo Road with Christina Raines and Morgan mm, Fairchild. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if you guys have seen that, but it's really good. Yeah, I, I remember it because um, I think one of the times he was on Battle of the Network Stars, it was mm. I think Christina Raines even may have been on on oh. that episode. And I, I want because I remember Flamingo Road showing up, and I was like, I don't remember that. And I looked it up, and I was like, okay, I vaguely remember that. Yeah. The thing about Flamingo Road is that I grew up in Vegas, and we had a casino called the Flamingo, which may still be there. I don't know, and it was on Flamingo Road. And so mm. when Flamingo Road aired, I assumed it was about that road. Ah, right. Ah. And I was, I didn't understand that other towns would have a Flamingo Road. Mm. So I was really surprised and disappointed that it, I think it takes place in Florida um, or someplace like that. I think so. And, um, and I was like, wait, there's another Flamingo Road. There's not a casino on it. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what I'm looking at. Um, so, <laughs> so I contacted Lori Lathine, who played Maria. Uh, yeah. because I thought she might have some stuff to say about it. So she gave me a couple of tidbits. So you, anybody who has seen Goliath the Waits would recognize Loyal Athene immediately if you watched TV in the 80s or you watched horror movies because she was sort of a great final girl in Bloody Birthday, but she doesn't do so well in The Prey, but she makes it through most of the film. Um, and also Return to Horror High, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah which she did with um, George Clooney. I yes. uh, was in that. 
And um, and she's a very good actress. Uh, she's lovely. She's a really, really cool person. I met her in person last year at Texas Fragment when she came out to promote the Prey Blu-ray release, um, which I did the commentary for. And she's really oh. sweet. So she said, um, I think my death scene was a precursor to the day after, just getting me ready for the end of the world. Christopher Lee was kind and professional. I was totally intimidated because he was such a distinguished fellow. And he was my favorite Dracula. I only had a short scene with him before I died. The actor that really gave me the creeps was Frank Gorshin. His character was frightening, <laughs> and every time I was around him, he was in character. And I, I think he got a kick out of it. He was talking in that voice all the time. I guess. Oh, yes. that would freak me out. <laughs> <laughs> so you see where she's coming from. Yeah. Um, and she also said she thought Mark Harmon was really amazing. So those were her little tidbits about it. So she had a pretty good time making it, I think. Oh, cool. um, and it's, she's been in so many things, and it's interesting the people that she knows you know, because she was also in an after-school um, uh, production of The Wave. Do you remember The Wave, Dan? I don't. I Wait, hmm, I don't. I'm sorry. Oh. It was based on that social experiment where oh. uh, they were trying to prove how, like, Nazis could come into power. And oh, yes. Okay. Do you remember that? Yeah, it's based on a book, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. And Bruce Davison plays the teacher, and she's one of the students. And I mean, she's in everything. And she's- so, like... Go she ahead. was in the 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 master. She was in an episode. Of, she's in a wheelchair right. in an episode of the master with Lee That's Van Cleef. Right. And is it Timothy Van Patten? Or? Yes, I think it's oh. Timothy Van Patten. Yeah. Yes, and yeah, she plays like um, she's in a wheelchair, and her sister is like a dancer, and right. her her dad used to be a dancer, and he looks like National Book Award winning author John Barth, and there's some like um um. Asian gangsters or something like that who are trying to take over. It's 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 fun and she's in the wheelchair the whole time and she you think she's going to rise up and dance in the end she doesn't but she's fun. Yeah, that's the thing. So so already with Lee Van Cleef, Christopher Lee, right, mm-hmm. and um, George Clooney, like like Bruce Davison, like she has worked with so many amazing people and um and she has tons of stories to tell and she's really great to talk to. So if you ever see her at a convention, you know you should definitely go up and chat her up because you're going to get a lot of great stories out of her. She's And she's a really, really sweet woman, and I love her. Um, so I already mentioned John McIntyre and Jeanette Nolan, um, who played the Breath of the Moves, were real-life husband and wife, um, and that Jean Marsh co-created Upstairs, Downstairs, which blew my mind. I didn't know that till I just looked it up for this podcast. Uh, John Carradine was... Or was a super prolific actor, and so I just I wrote down the things that he did in 1981, which was the year that this came out. He was in The Reluctant Dragon, which I think was a Disney thing. It's a short. He was in Frankenstein Island. He was in The Nesting, which we probably might remember here. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Which is a pretty weird little movie. Uh, she uh, he was in um, um, The Monster Club and also The Howling. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's all 1981. He, wow. I was surprised to see that he only worked with Christopher Lee one other time. I had assumed that they had been in a lot of stuff together. And maybe I'm wrong, but I, the only credit House I could find... Long Shadows? Shadows, yeah. That's the only credit I could find. And for some reason, I thought that they had been in a lot of stuff together. But maybe it's just because it seemed like they should have been. Yes. You know? Yeah. But... And um, as we mentioned uh, earlier, Frank Gorshin was in Death Car on the Freeway, which we just talked about in an earlier episode, like two or three episodes back, uh, mm-hmm. very recently. Of course, he's best known for, for playing the Riddler in um, the Batman from the 1960s, but he was a regular in a lot of AIP productions, such as Drag Strip Girl and Invasion of the Saucer Men. Um, he was nominated for an Emmy for his work in the Riddler, and I think I read that he was the only actor from that show to ever be nominated for an Emmy, mm-hmm. which feels really criminal to me because everybody was so good on that show. I just don't know that people knew what to make of TV in like the late 60s. 
because <laughs> like between that and Get Smart and the Monkees, it was like on another plane. Yeah. And <laughs> and the Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres, like those were shows that were way off mm-hmm. in left field. Talking about creating universes, right? Yeah. Mm. That were so bizarre that I think sometimes um, awards committees didn't fully appreciate what was happening. Mm-hmm. with a lot of the actors on that because they were just trying to keep up with the weird worlds that were being created. <laughs> yes. You know what yeah. I mean? That's I my impression. Like, I think like Get, Get Smart won like Best Comedy at the Emmys, I think twice. Oh, yeah, well, but, it but, Yeah, yeah, which was which was awesome. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but like The Monkees, I don't think nobody, I, I don't think people knew what to make of it, you yes. know, when it yeah. first came on. It was just <laughs> uh, so off. And The Batman was like that too, you know, because it was yeah. really funny. Yeah. You know, and and bright and colorful and and smart, but but it was weird. You know, it was different from your the Donna Reed show or whatever had previously come before it. You know, mm-hmm. um, so Christopher Lee um, also hosted Tales of the Haunted in 1981. So that was also something that was syndicated. I wrote about it in my book, so I won't go into too much detail. But it was um, Tales of the Haunted was like a novella series that only had one week's worth of episodes. So what it was supposed to be was where Christopher Lee would come in and host and for five days for half an hour a day, you would see uh, a different part of a full story. And so by the end of the week, you would get the whole story. And then in the next week they would have a new story. So it was like anthology programs that lasted, you know, for the whole week. And, um, and it only aired for the first week of episodes. And so um, Jack Palance started that story um, and they've excised it for, I think it ended up going to syndication and they ended up excising a lot of, so it's really choppy and they took out the Christopher Lee parts, um, which is unfortunate. So I've never actually seen Christopher Lee's hosting gig from it. Um, but he was supposed to be the host. I saw, and I wrote this down because I thought Gord Blimey might be familiar with it. He was in a 2000 remake of the stalls of Barchester. Oh, right. I've not seen the remake. I've heard of it, but I've not seen it. Yes. Ooh, I would like to see it. So, cause you and I covered mm, the ghost stories for Christmas and yeah. But that was one of the episodes we talked about, and I didn't know it had been remade, so I'd, I'd really like to see that, um, especially because Chris Lee's in it. So I talked briefly about Alex Cord, um, who plays the doctor in this. Uh, he had a really interesting life. So he actually wanted to be a jockey uh, when he was a kid, but he, as you can see, was a big guy, and so he became too tall uh, and too big for to ride the horse in, in as a horse racer. But he ended up joining the rodeo circuit after he dropped out of high school. He finally ended up getting a degree in literature, but he fell into acting. Um, and he actually used his equestrian skills to get work in Western. So that's kind of how he broke into acting. He now has over 300 acting credits. He lives in Texas, by the way, in Fort Worth. And his neighbor is Robert Fuller, who played Dr. Bracken on Emergency, who's one of my all-time biggest crushes. So I think I'm going to be going to Fort Worth. <laughs> and looking for the two branches that are next to each other. So when I made this list of what these actors have done, I tried to write things they did that took place in the water. So um, Alex Cord did two episodes of Love Boat between 1979 and 1981, which would put him back on a boat. So we didn't go too much into Robert Forrester, but as, as I mentioned, um, he's one of my favorite actors of all time. Um, he had just done Alligator the year before, so that put him in the sewer, right? Um, <laughs> and a lot of watery depths there in the cities of, I think Chicago's where that takes place. Uh, you know, Forrester had a really impressive beginning to his career. He was in Reflections of a Golden Eye and Medium Cool, which is amazing. Um, but then he did a long stretch of B-movies and a lot of television work before Quentin Tarantino cast him as Max Cherry and Jackie Brown, which he would get nominated for an Oscar for. But he, he did do some TV shows, and he starred in a couple of short-lived series, including Banyan and Nakia, neither of which I've seen um, yet. Um, but then in Jackie, after Jackie Brown, he would go on to do Karen Sisko, and I think he did that TV show that McGee produced. It was called, like, Fast Car. Do you know what I'm talking about? It was on Fox. 
with uh, oh, Tiffany Amber oh, no, no. Yeah, I think he might have been in that. I can't remember. He was also on Heroes. He started in a couple of TV movies, including The Darker Side of Terror. And then he was later, he was in a remake of Rear Window with Christopher Reeve, where, they, where Christopher Reeve produced a movie that basically, where he was able to utilize him being in a wheelchair. And, and he remade Rear Window. And it's, it's a lot of people dissed it because it's obviously not going to be the Hitchcock classic. But it's really good because Chris Reeve spends a lot of time taking you into his world and what it's like to be a quadriplegic. And um, there's a lot of heart in the film. And Robert Forster is the police officer that comes to visit him and check on things. And he's really good in it. So anyway, he was a wonderful actor. And he's done so many amazing things. And if you're not that familiar with him and you liked him in Goliath the Weights, then you definitely need to go on his IMDb page and just start picking and choosing films that he's in. Because you're going to get a great performance every time. Um, he did a really good movie. Um called American Perfect. So I met Robert Forster twice. And the first time I met him, he gave a talk. And he had just made a movie called American Perfect. It was right after Jackie Brown came out. And it was like two weeks before the Oscars when he'd been nominated. And he said that he made this movie that he was really proud of and that he was hoping people would see it. It ended up not getting a theatrical. It ended up coming out on video and I rented it and eventually bought it. And it's a really weird, 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 like serial killer kind of film. And he's really good in it. And I think Fruza Balk's in it as well. Um, and I would recommend that would be a good one if you're not too familiar with his work. Also, he did Outside of Zona, which is another really good kind of slice of life weird film that came out around the same time. Um, he would go on to work with Duncan Rieger, who played Riker, um, in a directed video erotic thriller called The Banker, which I love. And if you haven't seen that, it's a lot of fun if you love like really light erotic thrillers. Um, Robert Forster's character lives in a treehouse, and he's sort of this down and out cop who is. Um, investigating the serial killer known as the banker played by duncan rieger and um it's just really fun so again like i said this caught mark Harmon sort of right before he became really famous um then of course he would go on to play ted bundy in 1986 which i think was a career defining moment for him and i think it's interesting somebody here brought up beyond the poseidon adventure he's in that so he did that in 1979 uh, yeah so that so that put him back underwater just two years later um <laughs> And that's kind of all I have for my um, background. And now it's time for feedback. Adam Gordon here. Sorry I've been away. The highlights I've missed include a significantly better cruise into terror than I was led to expect. Any movie that has Lee Merriweather having sex with one of Satan's minions, then screaming in tongues while attacking her pastor husband, can't be all bad. Death Cruise, while a solid mystery, had the wrong tone for a cruise ship. Romance was the better choice for the love boat format. The Valerie Harper action movies were a pleasant surprise, though her antagonists sure did make a lot of mistakes. Cotton Candy and Senior Trip were really just an adult's fantasy of high school. Senior Trip being surprisingly raunchy for TV and unsurprisingly down on New York City. Taste of Evil, a simplified version of No Place to Hide, along with the claustrophobic The Strange and Deadly Occurrence, featured the identifiable style of John Llewellyn Moxie. Gladiator, while being a compelling look at the issues of drunk driving and vigilantism, had a blightingly obvious finish. The fact that the antagonist was a complete rando confirmed that the film sided with Wall's character. A shout-out to Nancy Allen as the sexy radio talk show host, but that is sort of right up my alley. Death Car on the Freeway has been a recent favorite of mine, primarily thanks to Shelley Hack, and was an excellent female empowerment film to rival the Valerie Harper entries. These two films, with its helpful lack of traffic, don't make you scared to drive around Los Angeles. Rather, they just fool you into thinking that you can make good time getting around town. A Silent Panic was a great look back at the golden era of television, and a taut, intense thriller. To this month's miniseries, Goliath Awaits from 1981. 
this three-plus-hour film played like a dystopian Star Trek episode. Hopefully not to repeat, but there was a Star Trek Voyager episode called The 37s, which had a similar premise. 37 people were abducted by aliens prior to World War II and were taken to another planet as slaves. Not only were the humans able to overcome their captors, but they developed a thriving, if low-tech, civilization of over 100,000 people. That civilization overcame greater odds than those aboard the Goliath. And yet, no Hitler-like supreme leader emerged. In the episode, none of the settlers decide to join Voyager on their trip back to Earth. But there weren't any proto-Nazis running that planet, plus they had a better workers' compensation plan. In reality, the final decision to stay or go was a referendum for each individual on Mackenzie's manipulative leadership. While it's easy to say that absolute power corrupts absolutely, the movie forgot to explain why the arc of human history had to necessarily be replicated aboard the Goliath, or why Mackenzie became a murderous tyrant. Once Mackenzie became fully aware of the gravity of his situation, I wasn't surprised when he went full-on Jim Jones. I came away with the impression that those in charge really feared having to pay for their crimes on the surface, rather than having some noble principle. The fact that those who remained actually died slowly of gas poisoning prior to the explosion was a symbol of their existence on the Goliath, more of a slow death rather than much of a life. There were some great touches, including the underwater sequences and the fact that the undersea culture hadn't changed one iota. Ultimately, though, this idea has been done better elsewhere. To wrap up, I have to tell you a quick story. My niece was assigned to do a movie review for her high school English class, so I suggested the Jacqueline Smith vehicle, Escape from Bogan County, covered here last January. I also lent her Are You in the House Alone, where she got a couple citations for a background of the history of TV movies. I did point out a couple of things. The desolate landscape is a symbol for Smith's isolation, the jail cell where Smith was physically trapped between her captor and her liberator, and the sequence at the end where the panorama dissolves into Smith's picture, representing Bowman's one true regret, losing his wife. Not only did she get an A, she had her essay read aloud in class as a model paper. So, thanks again, Amanda. Well, I think thanks to Adam. I mean, he pointed out some really neat stuff about Escape from Bogan County, which... Hmm. um, I mean, it's funny, I watched a movie with Michael Parks last night called Heart Country, um, and I I was hoping he'd sing, because, you know, when his, you remember <laughs> yes. Escape from Bogan County, he serenades Jacqueline Smith's character, and I just love it. His singing voice is amazing. Here he just plays a lecherous brother who tries to rape his uh, brother's girlfriend in Heart Country. It's a different <laughs> role. Uh. He's doing different things. But um, thank you, Adam. First of all, wow. Okay. So, like, in one sentence per film, he basically encapsulated everything. Uh-huh. So... We didn't. Eat, we can just delete those episodes off the iTunes because <laughs> and he can just fill everybody in. And it's interesting what he said about the dystopian universe. And also, was that a which Star Trek was that? Star Trek uh, Voyager. Voyager, which I wasn't familiar with, and that might be worth checking out for people interested. The whole dystopian utopian thing. I wanted to go into to some depth, but I didn't really have time to really research it to the degree that I felt comfortable talking about it. But. I'm not sure how many TV movies or maybe films in general, although I think it might be more a theatrical thing, where you see things that feel like a utopia and the closer you look, it's a dystopia. Do you know what I mean? Like that was really interesting to me. And also I think in reality, it's almost impossible for a utopian community to survive. And I was trying to find some information about that because there always has to be some kind of leadership. And I'm not saying there has to be a class system, but like, 
we talk about how we live in a democracy, but we actually live in a capitalistic, you know, structure, right? And for capitalism to succeed, there always has to be somebody beneath you, right? And so we, so like, I, I'm not saying that you can live without full equality, but if you have a leader, then you're already developing a system of hierarchy, right? And so well, I was curious about utopia and dystopia running together on a spectrum, but I just couldn't get into it. But I'm glad that Dan and Adam kind of sussed out that subtext as well. I thought that was really interesting. Um, I don't think he liked it as much as we did, though, the film. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't seem to have. That's okay, though. We still like you, Adam. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Of course we do. (laughs) Um, And I'm really excited about that paper. Um, I would love to see that. He should send it to us. Um, And we don't have to read it on the air, but I would definitely love to read uh, her essay. It sounds amazing. Yeah. 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 Really good. And that's a deep dive, too, because Escape from Bogan County is not just a TV movie, which already makes it obscure, but it's an obscure TV movie, yes. right? Like, yeah. it's not dual, you know? So, like, it's a movie that I bet nobody in that class had ever even heard of before. I mean, even the teacher, right? So mm-hmm. um, that's a really interesting choice uh, for a film, and I'm really glad she chose it. Um, so, okay, so thank you, Adam. I really appreciate you, you coming back. We missed you. Yeah, yeah. Good to have you back, sir. Hello, Amanda, Dan, Nate, and Gore Blimey! Yay! I cannot wait to hear you all together for this podcast. I, I can't imagine contributing anything you haven't already covered, so I can only voice my enjoyment. What a great choice of movie or miniseries. I'd never heard of this one, and it was awesome. Of course, it reminded me of On Thursday We Leave for Home from Twilight Zone, though it ends, ends much more darkly. The, the introduction of the possibility that there were Nazis aboard Goliath gave the hint that things could go south, and sure enough, without being blatant, it became an experiment in fascist society. In fact, did I miss something? They never, they never actually came out and said, I don't think, that Christopher Lee was secretly a Nazi, but it, it seemed clear enough. Um, anyway, I did not expect to see Emma Sams. So delightful! My adolescent crush came rushing back for almost the whole movie until she became basically a worthless sack of potatoes at the end. How could the daughter of Christopher Lee suddenly be so weak? If only she had uh, drawn strength from Mark Harmon's mustache. Speaking of which, I'd like to see Mark Harmon's mustache get together with Ken Wall's eyebrows for a hair-raising movie. Ho, ho! Hey, hey, now. Really, my crush on Emma Sams was replaced by Jean Marsh. She was amazing, and so complex and layered. Uh, She almost made it forgivable what a sausage fest this movie was. Though, uh, it's great sausage, to be sure. Frank Gorshin, Christopher Lee, Eddie Albert, Robert Forrester, and Cliff Clavin! Uh, Although I have to admit, I was disappointed to see Kirk Cameron's name in the credits. I didn't recognize him at first, but that was, he was the kid. And if I knew that kid was him, I would have thrown food at my screen. But uh, I did not. So I enjoyed the movie. Now, speaking of politics, you might cut this last comment, and that's okay. Uh, But how fascinating to see a functioning fascist community, unaware of its own fascism, offered a better life by folks who represent progress. How some would choose to die along with this unsustainable fascist state, rather than, a, than follow the, the uneasy path to the imperfect but promising future. Thankfully, most of them took a chance on hope. 
And I hope that that's a sign of good things to come for us. Uh, another side note, I was, I was actually going to try to record a Cliff Clavin impersonation and do some diving trivia uh, uh, that ended in a joke. But number one, I couldn't, I couldn't come up with a joke. And number two, my uh, Cliff Clavin impersonation is horrible. So I did not go that route. But I did find out that there was a guy who uh, actually did this dive. I mean, not this specific dive, but he dove a thousand feet. Ahmed Gaber. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. He, he's a, in the Guinness Book of World Records for deepest scuba dive at more than a thousand feet. He did it uh, near the Red Sea. And I'm looking at this Facebook, not, not Facebook, uh, uh, internet page because I'm trying to, he, it took him all day. And the thing is, he dove fairly quickly, but it took 15 hours to come back up in order to avoid the bends. So, way to go, Ahmed. Thanks so much, Dan. There, yeah. there was some really interesting stuff in there, but it was especially lovely uh, what you wrote about sort of the political kind of connotations to it and choosing hope. And and uh, like you, I, I kind of hope that that's a sign for us in this world, too. Um, and that was a really beautiful way to say it. Does anybody else want to add anything? Yeah, I want to say, hey, back. How nice is that? Um, yeah. And I and I love that Stan's commented on a couple of things that I've I mentioned as well. So, I mean, Emma Sam's being like a worthless sack of potatoes at the end. Yes. <laughs> and um, referring to this as a sausage fest. Brilliant. And, um, and yeah. I love the idea of some kind of a erotic um, movie with Mark Harmon's moustache and the, the, some of his eyebrows. Brilliant stuff. I, I'd, I'd read that. I'd watch that. <laughs> I just, I believe you. That's the thing. <laughs> no, that was fant- fantastic. Uh, th- thank you. Thank you, Stan. Very, very good. Very good. Yeah, it was interesting about the dive, too, like the yes. 15 hours to come back up. I would get so bored. Yeah, gosh. And you wouldn't have to – you you couldn't have a book with you because you're in the water. You'd have to have like, a waterproof right. book or something <laughs> like that. It also reminded me of how there's so many movies where people go underwater and they can somehow magically talk to each other. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which they wouldn't be able to do with the breathing apparatus, right? Like You would, and, you would think, yeah. <laughs> but every there's a there's this really great movie called Shark Attack 2 oh, where yes. – at the end, they go to because there's a bunch of sharks, right? Like living in this cave or something, and they all they dive they all dive down. I think there's two or three of them, and they are all making one-liners, mm-hmm. like as they're diving to like 300 <laughs> like sharks, and it's it's hilarious because you're like, well, first of all, how are you talking to each other, and secondly, why are you making jokes? Because it's they're going to kill you, I think. But uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, so that was all really interesting. So thank you so much, Dan. Thank I'm trying to think what else. I think. I think Gorblimey covered it about that we should have talked. It was kind of a sausage fest. There was, there were actresses in it, but G Marsh is really the only one who got that chance to really shine. Although I do think that Emma Sams was really good in the part. Um, I just don't know that the character was as strong as it could have been. Maybe. Yeah. 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 Yeah, But she's amazing. Um, I love her uh, so much. Um, and she would go on to be Holly on General Hospital, and so therefore all sins are forgiven for me <laughs> when it comes to her. She's fantastic. Um, and so that was it for our feedback. Um, again, thank you, Stan and Adam. That was wonderful. Thank you. Um, yeah. And I'm surprised we got any feedback at all because I posted when we were recording, but I, didn't, I usually I followed up with several posts on Twitter and mm-hmm. Facebook, but I just didn't have the time to do mm-hmm. it this time. So 
But I will give you a heads up on what we're doing on our next episode. So I won't tell you we're going to have another guest. I won't say who it was, who it is, because we haven't lined up dates yet. And it's somebody else who lives in the UK. And I know it's harder for us to kind of align schedules, but we're going to try really hard at the end of March to get this person on. And we're going to do a celebration of Shannon Doherty's television movie career. Oh, wow. um, and I'm really excited about it. Yeah, we said we were going to do this when we did the Troy Spelling episodes way, way back now. Um, that we were going to cover Shannon Doherty, and I didn't get around to it. And I feel really bad about it because I don't think I should wait till somebody has stage four cancer to uh, mm-hmm. talk about how amazing they are. But when Valerie Harper was first diagnosed with her cancer, I did a blogathon for her mm-hmm. where I reached out to a bunch of different bloggers and asked them all to write about why they love Valerie Harper, and a bunch of people participated. And so what I'm hoping is I haven't picked the two films yet. That's coming up. But um, if anybody wants to write in and talk about Shannon Doherty's career, anything, her film work, her television work, her TV movies, you come and drop us a line because she is so amazing. She's such a badass. If anybody can uh, survive what she is going through, she can. And so I thought this could be a really positive way to like send our love to her. And that's what we're going to do. And I'm going to try to pick two of her best TV movies. Now, two of them were already covered in the book, and those were the two I probably would have thought about doubling, but they've already been written about. Let's pick two other TV movies. So the thing is, she's done a ton of them. So I have to really figure out which ones I want to talk about. And um, so just stay tuned for that. And you can figure out, um, not figure out, you can find out what Shannon Doherty movies we're going to cover or when our latest episodes come on if you follow us on our social media. So you can follow us on Instagram at Made for TV Mayhem. You can find us on Facebook at the Made for TV Mayhem show. You can find us on Twitter at TV Mayhem Podcast. Or you can go to our website, which is tvmayhempodcast.wordpress.com. Or you can email us, which I believe our email is tvmayhempodcast at gmail.com. This is our shameless self-promotion portion before we leave. So <laughs> things that we've done or where to find us and blah, blah, blah. So let's start with Gore Blimey. What do you have going on? Um, I have loads going on at the moment, but not necessarily podcasting stuff. Um, I mean, I'm really glad that I was able to make it here today because um, it's a mad week. Um, earlier in the week, I bit my tongue badly. I was, I was a bit oh. um, overexcited on a corma, I think. But uh, <laughs> so it was a bit touch and go because I didn't want to end up look, sounding like Jimmy Jr. You know, when I'm talking to you. Um, and, and you know how hard it is to speak clearly when you've got a big swollen thing in your mouth. You know, so, it's, <laughs> so I really don't want to. But luckily, things have gone down. Down since then it's also busy here at the moment in wales because it's st david's day tomorrow which is the the saint for wales so um i sure i expect i shall go and buy some daffodils and have a leek so um you know we like our <laughs> national symbols here especially the plant and vegetable ones and and of course this week um you know we've we had christmas we've had you've had thanksgiving we've we've had pancake tuesday this week and i is that a thing over there i don't know if you have no, no. Well, there's no. like ihop pancake day where i think the pancakes are half off or free or something like oh, that not quite the same. I mean, a, we, yeah. we all join in we all we, everyone um we at home we all kind of make and, and toss pancakes in a pan which is which is which is good i mean you, you do need to have a good tossing technique um i mean <laughs> apparently it's all in the wrist action you know and uh, you need to be able to whip up good batter first so <laughs> So, uh, um, yeah, so that's been a busy week. But, um, no, I am going to be coming back with uh, a new episode of the podcast soon, um, the Trilogy of Terror podcast. And um, I shall be with, I won't say much about it, but I'm going to be with a a guest which some people may be familiar with if you uh, 
follow the kind of podcast that I follow, let's say. Mm. Um, someone I'm really excited to be doing um, a show with this episode. Um, and that will be coming up soon. So uh, I'm not disappeared yet. I'm still around. So um, that's what I'm up to. So, uh, yes, and, and thank you for inviting me on to this today. Oh, yeah, uh, great. Well, how can we find you? So you're on Twitter, right? So what's your yeah. Twitter handle? Um, the best way to get a hold of me and to find me and my sort of ramblings is on Twitter. Um, for me, it's at I am Gore or one word. Um, and you can find the podcast, I mean, apart from on iTunes and um, the usual podcatchers and things like this, um, there's also the website, which is trilogyofterrorpodcast.com, and you can find previous episodes and um, sort of links and things on there as well. So those are the, uh, the easiest way to get hold of me or to follow me. I love your last episode because you had an American on. Is it Johnny Knock? Did I get his oh, name right? Johnny Numb. Yeah, the lovely Johnny Numb from the Last Numb. Knock podcast. Yes. The Last Knock. That's what it is. And and he wasn't really sure if a double entendre was going to come or not. So, like, there there was this really great moment where you're talking about pudding and he's laughing because I think he thought maybe there was something there. And there wasn't really. But then he started to talk about nuts in his lap for Christmas because, like, the way they string nuts on, you know, for the tree. And it was the whole, most hilarious, like, three minutes I've ever heard <laughs> in my entire life. I could uh, not stop laughing. It was so good. And it was full of all those double entendres that you are um, famous for. So uh, what if his name was Rubber Johnny? Because I don't know what a Rubber Johnny is. <laughs> he, Yeah, he, he always says at the end of their podcast, he says um, he gives his, his, his details. And he always says his name is Johnny Numb and there are no H's in those Johnnies. And it always amuses me because over here a Johnny is a, is a condom um, mm. and has been, you know, I mean, it's, it's now we call them condoms. But it, when I was growing up, up until the 80s, it was always a, it was always a Johnny or a rubber Johnny. And so it always sounds a bit odd when somebody says there are no H in those Johnnies. And you think, what are H's and what, what are they doing? <laughs> so it just amused me, the poor guy. I mean, the poor. Oh, no, he was, was a great. really was good so sport. Fun. He he was really good fun. Yeah, he was is great. Yeah, had a lot of fun doing that. You guys had a great discussion about Maniac, which I didn't really think of as a Christmas film, no, you know, no. until you guys did it as such. And and so some of the stuff you pointed out was really fascinating. So anyway, everybody check out his podcast, Trilogy of Terror. And um, Dan, what have you got going on? Uh, I uh, venture Super Train, as always, uh, and you and I, Amanda, are, are about to finish uh, Masquerade. Uh, finally, and um, which is too bad. Um, and we're still talking. I'm still talking Bourbon Street Beat with Mitchell Hadley, and I just started talking Shadow Chasers uh, from the mid '80s. Uh, and also, if you go back to old episodes of Venture Super Train, you will find Mr. Gore Blimey on there. We discuss uh, mm-hmm. the wonderful Garth Marenghi's Dark Place and the quite wonderful follow-up Man to Man with Dean Lerner. We'll be which delving is awesome. into his Dark Place. Yes, so to oh speak. boy. Yes, and, 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 and of course. And, um, yeah, the Adventure Super Train and the, my Happy Days podcast, I just started season three. And um, I'm going to be doing another one-minute, minute-by-minute podcast soon. I just haven't figured out what movies to talk about yet. So that's that's kind of where I, I am at the moment. Wow, it's very good. Um, uh, so I guess I'll just say what the big – well, first of all, Dan and uh, Nate and myself, we did a commentary for a Kino Lobo release called Amazon's that yes. came out in December. 
which um, if you're into TV movies, that's a really good one. And um, we had a lot of fun doing that commentary. So pick that up if you're interested. Um, but I guess I can finally tell everybody one of the reasons why we've had to put the podcast off for so long was that I wrote a book and with uh, Bill Ackerman from Supporting Characters podcast. Uh, we yeah. do a lot of projects together. And it's going to be in part of the Al Adamson box set, which mm. just got announced by Severin, where they're releasing yes. basically every, almost every, like 95% of Al Adamson's movies in a set. And it's going to have this book with some production history about each and every film that Dan, uh, Dan I'm sorry, that Bill and I wrote. And we're really excited about it. We just saw the proof of the book, and it's beautiful. And um, makes me even more excited about it. And it's going to be a really neat box set. I don't know if the book will be separate, but... If you're into Al Adamson, I think it's a set to pick up. He was a really wonderful filmmaker, and we kind of, we've always liked him. But, you know, when you work on some of these projects, you always hope you fall in love with the subject. And I am super in love with Al Adamson right now, especially <laughs> Carnival Magic. I think oh, that's yeah. like the craziest, most wonderful film ever. Um, <laughs> so, so you can just look up Severin and find that. Uh, next month, Bill Ackerman and I are going to be... Um, on a Kino Lobo release for Pray for the Wildcats. We did the commentary for that. That's a really great movie. I'm super excited to be a part of that. Um, and again, that comes out in March. I uploaded a new Trapcast, uh, which is online now, and um, hopefully I can do them once a month. I'm not sure, but I'm going to try really hard to keep going with them. And that's it for me. Uh, and I think that's it for our episode. So thank you so much, Gore Blimey, for joining us. I really appreciate it. Your insights about Mark Harmon's um, pants. <laughs> they were. What did you think of Alex Court's mustache? Um, that was kind of impressive as well. I, I did wonder if it was real or not, but I think it was, wasn't it? I think it was. I think so, so. Did he did did his impression remind you of Foghorn Leghorn? <laughs> Maybe a little. Yeah. Hey, boy! Come on over here. Let's have a look at you. This is a boy? So boy. that's what I was trying to think of when we were talking about accents. <laughs> so um, any people can listen to that. Anyway, so thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Dan, again, for um, all your hard work on this show. Oh, sure. And hopefully <laughs> Nate will be back with us next month. If not, we'll have a guest. And um, that's it. So we'll see you next time. Good night. Good night. Bye. Bye.